What would you prefer, though, is what I'm saying. A horse man or a man horse? Uh, I mean, that's a tough call, right? You do, and is the man horse like a horse head on a human body or, you know, is the, the horse man the centaur? Like, which is which? Mm-hmm. And isn't that just the most pertinent of the questions? Isn't that just which I have noticed daddy government hasn't failed to answer for us? No one can even agree what a man horse and a horse man is or what the difference is. So... It's a failure of the system, if you ask Honestly... Me. Honestly, I mean, I used to believe that democracy worked, but right now I can't even choose between a man horse or a horse man because fuck if I know the difference. So welcome anyway to the uh, spin-off doctors. Um, Not doing the movie boys thing anymore. Uh, I'm Jim Sterling. I'm joined by Conrad Zimmerman. How are you? I'm doing great, Jim. How are you? I'm fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm in a good mood, actually. It's been a fine, fine week so far. Um... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And we watched The the Wizard. And we watched The Wizard, which was an 80s movie. Very, very much an 80s movie. Coming right at the tail end. Right there, yes. 89. um, December 6th, or December 15th, 1989. It uh, just squeaked in. Yeah. I mean, honestly, like, the. Early 90s might as well be the late 80s, just as the early uh, late 90s might as well have been the early 2000s. But uh, still, it's it's an 80s film that just squeaked in. And if it was if it was 1990 on January 1st that it came out, it would be a 90s movie. Just barely. Yeah. (laughs) And, And and they'd all be saying, you know, cowabunga. And referencing Free Willy as if it was relevant in 1990 on January 1st. <laughs> because that's how the 90s work. Well, so uh, that's how decades work. But, I, was, yeah. I was so surprised to discover that you had not seen Not the seen Wizard. The Wizard. No, not seen The Wizard, my friend. Um, and it, it's odd to me having now seen it. Because as I told you, the amount of times throughout my childhood that I've watched Flight of the Navigator. Having watched this, I feel like 30% of those times should have been me watching The Wizard. It's that exact kind of, and if you are, you know, in sort of your 30s like me, um, you'll know what I mean when I say Sunday afternoon movie after you've had your Sunday dinner, like maybe at your nan and granddad's or something, and Flight of the Navigator comes on. Or, or, I don't know, fucking Short Circuit 2 or something. I think that one was acceptable. Or was that that probably would have been an 8pm one. They show that one on ITV in the 90s. Um, they show that on ITV at 8pm. With adverts, commercials, of course. And then it gets to 10pm. And they suspend the movie for the news at 10 on ITV. Fucking Trevor McDonald banging on about what's been happening in London and shit. Wait, they would suspend the movie for the yeah, news? This is what they would do. I, d- I doubt they do it now. I- I'm-, I'm pretty sure they stop the, the practice. So <laughs> As if it's an old torture method. Like, uh, they abolish the how practice. How does that scheduling work? Like, they're just like, oh, this movie's a little longer than the other ones, so we're just going to stop and do news and then finish the movie? What happens is, is... <laughs> what, what fucking happens is this is I'm, I've got a VHS tape and I'm recording Gremlins <laughs> 2 the new batch Conrad that's what happens is I've set it to record 
Um, and so every time during the scene where Billy Peltzer goes into the dentist's office and is knocked out by the, you know, the kooky gremlin who's all, right, yeah. is knocked out by him with a mallet and you just see the silhouettes of them against the wall, is I think the fucking news at 10's about to come on. <laughs> is I think fucking I'm going to hear bong tonight on news at 10 and fucking Trevor McDonald, which I do think we cut it for the VHS if I recall correctly, either that or we fast forward it because I can't remember a fucking thing about the news. But that's all I know is it would get to that point and then it's fucking 30 minutes of news <laughs> and then they wrap up the rest of the movie. That is that is kind of... Because, I mean, here what they would do is they would just cut the movie to make it fit into the constraints of the, you know, nine of uh, the two-hour time block, basically. Yeah. You know, they take a 90-minute film, uh, they'd put in um, three two-minute commercial breaks into each half-hour segment, basically, and then cut down anything, you know, possibly offensive, and then yeah. cut down anything possibly plot-relevant to get it to fit <laughs> into that 90 minutes. Yeah, well, there, I mean, on the flip side, there's uh, things about the way... TV is structured here that confuse me. Mm-hmm. Like the the concept of commercial breaks happening after the plot or the, or the game show or what have you has resolved. Then there are commercials. Then it comes back for them just to say goodbye and for the credits to happen. Yeah, that's a weird cut to me. Whereas in the UK, it's the show starts fifteen minutes commercial break, fifteen minutes commercial break. So if it's a half-hour show, or, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever, um, it's split in half by the commercials. Just a, just a, a an honest, equal, working man's cut. <laughs> I don't get the American way it's done. It confuses and baffles me even to this day, having lived here this long. The, the one that gets me, and I don't know if this is just how it's done on Hulu. Yeah. Uh, by the way... Com- you are listening to two old men. I just, just for the listeners, you listen to two old men. And some of you, this may just be completely irrelevant because all you know is Netflix. But, yeah. but this is relevant to us. So let us have our time. Conrad, sorry, continue. The <laughs> well, listeners no, so, interrupting you. Uh, and I don't know if they do this, if it's done this way on Comedy Central, but I kind of suspect it is. It's just been so long since I've been on cable to know. But South Park, on Hulu at the very least, you get a commercial when you start the video, and then it plays the opening theme tune sequence, and then there's another commercial break immediately after that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I can't, I cannot with Hulu commercials. Like we signed up for the premium thing because I, I, I like Hulu, but I can't watch it with the commercials. It's a mess. See, it just I, it butchers shows. It's a fun game for me because <laughs> most of the shows, I mean, unless I'm watching something from you know another culture. They're all structured for these commercial breaks already. You know, that's, yeah. That's how they're built to be done. So that's fine. But I, I actually, I think where South Park's concerned, it may be an intentional gambit. Uh, for if, if it's, you know, done on Comedy Central, if they do it the same way there. And I think I know why. It's because they expect everyone who's coming in to watch South Park is stoned and going to be late. <laughs> and so they front load it with four minutes of bullshit. While well, they've still got them, yeah. 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 
<laughs> That's fiendish. Yeah, I think you've nailed that. That's oh. why you're the businessman of the two of us. <laughs> yes, I'm very successful. <laughs> uh, have you seen that taboo with Tom Hardy? I have not. Oh, that's a dark show. Yeah? Yeah, oh, I blasted through it in like two days. I'll have to check that out. Oh, it's a dark show. Mm. Oh, you know, I, you know I, it was described to me as, and I think this is quite fair, Tom Hardy playing a Malkavian from Vampire the Masquerade. Ooh. It's set in like pre, just pre-Victorian London, and, and it's Tom Hardy, and once, you, once it was pointed out, I'm like, yeah, like pure Malk. Mm. Sorry, you were gonna say something. I don't. Re- oh, I was. You were saying it's very dark. I was gonna say that the the wizard. Oh um, yeah, we are here to talk about that. Yeah, that that's a film that maybe unintentionally dark in some ways. Yes, yes, I would say there are there are elements of it that are yeah. Um, they're a little unsettling. A little there are unfortunate implications in certain points. There well. are some very yeah. unfortunate suggestions made in mm-hmm. this film. That, I mean, uh, the video Armageddon announcer playing okay. with pigtails and, uh, and, and I, sweating. I want to say this because I think you're going to agree with me 100%. Yeah. <laughs> missed opportunity. That part should have been played by Rick Mayall. Honestly, the moment I said sweating profusely, I was thinking of Rick Mayall, so yeah, <laughs> I cannot disagree. He he could have... It would have been... I mean, this guy was all right doing a Rick Mayall impression, because I really feel like that's kind of what he was doing. <laughs> uh, but man, he would have been... I mean, any any excuse to have had Rick Mayall in more films, I guess. I mean, but... yeah. Like, I've watched some, I've watched some awful movies just for Rick Mayall. Like there's a, a a movie that I don't I don't think it's particularly great. I can't even remember what it's called, but it's uh, I think Peter Cook stars in it, and Michael Richards is in it uh, as a master of disguise, and he blacks up in one scene. Uh, so that's unfortunate uh, in retrospect. I hadn't seen the movie until after his uh, rather infamous outburst, so. <laughs> Having then watched it, but it's it's not all that great a movie, except almost to like near the end, they call in the SAS to do something, and it's Rick Mayall leading the SAS. Oh, and it's so fucking good, like it's it's just it it's one scene is all he's in, and it's worth watching just for that. Like they're trying to like I think. This has been many years ago, but it's something along the lines of they're trying to like get into a museum to, to, to you know, perform some operation. And they can't get in because the ticket turnstile won't let them in. Mm-hmm. So it's Rick Mayle just, the turnstile won't let you in with a fucking SAS! Break in there, <laughs> get some tickets and hand them out! It's like just fucking amazing. Um, I probably like got that completely wrong because I watched it like 15 years ago, but it... The scene is probably on YouTube. If you look up, like, Rick Mayall SAS, it's worth watching. The rest of the movie is, again, from what I remember, not that great, but Rick Mayall is the leader of the SAS is just gold, as they would say. Um, while, while we're on the subject, um, mm-hmm. have you seen the new Star Wars yet? Uh, yes, I have. Yeah. Yes. So you saw Adrian yes. Edmondson? Here's the thing. Like, it must be that I've not seen him in recent memory. 
But I didn't realize it was him until it was pointed out to me afterwards, especially like my friend, you know, my old friend from uh, back home from, mm-hmm. from childhood was uh, like, is that why General Hux was behaving like Rick Mail so much was to impress Adrian Edmondson. <laughs> and then I'm like, holy shit, was Adrian Edmondson in that? Holy shit. So it's like, I've got to go rewatch it again and, and doubly enjoy it. I enjoyed well, it very much. I won't go into spoilers here. Of yeah, course, that's good. But... I haven't seen it yet. And yeah. I'm not a big Star Wars fan. Um, I I've, now the reviews that I've read has in, made me very interested. In it is, it. it's a movie that is very divisive now, and I think will be looked back on very fondly. Yeah. Um, I for one loved the directions it went in, uh, and I like that. I like it for a lot of the reasons people don't like it, and I think that's gonna be the sort of the, the general feeling towards this film for quite some time is that the exact reason some people hate it is the exact reason some people love it. Mm-hmm. And I'm in the love it camp, uh, I must say. Um, but that's just me. And and there you go. Uh, but I was, I, I found it quite, there were bits in it that I, I, would dis, I was disappointed by, sure. sure. But certainly the bits that were, that, that others were let down by, I specifically liked for that reason as well. Um, but there we go. That's uh, that's my review of The Last Jedi. Uh, seven yeah, out of we, ten. We've really meandered around. I mean, this brings us back to the wizard in so many yes. ways. I should point out, we're not doing like a joke. Like, no. this isn't like... This isn't a something, gag. This isn't like something like Red Letter Media would do, where we're going to dance around the topic of the wizard for an hour and that's it. Um, I just, I don't know why we did, decided to do this for 15 minutes. <laughs> Uh, we were just talking about the eighties and why I hadn't seen the wizard, and then we got, we got onto this. But well, but carry well, we on. We got into Rick Mail. Um, um, I mean, yeah, is is what it, I think happened there. But I mean, so the wizard is I mean, it, not well received at the time of its release, critically. <laughs> That's a surprise. Um, I think. Uh, well, obviously, it was pointed out rather immediately that the film um, is a like a ninety-minute commercial for Nintendo products. Yeah, it's a big, big Nintendo commercial, uh, and it's not subtle. Like, it's not even trying to uh, to hide it. it no. it's it's on the same level as you know House of Cards. That scene where it's like, is that a PS Vita? And it's like, <laughs> more games are on that. Yeah. I just got all the games to say. Mm. I bet Sony's uh, really not thrilled about that. Well, they don't care about the Vita anymore. Well, yeah. I mean, that <laughs> to me, it was just the final insult for the Vita. It's like, well, at least you've always got your house of cards. Oh, <laughs> oh I'm planning to use that for a future dual position at some point, um, uh, just to detail the sad life of the Vita. But uh, yeah, yeah, um, it is just... It's it's a it's not a movie about Nintendo, but no. it is a, it's an 80s... In fact, it's a movie that tries very hard to be about anything but Nintendo, and then shoves Nintendo in yeah. every chance it gets. It's like clearly someone had their vision for a movie, and an executive had their vision for a commercial, and the two things collided. I don't and... know. Okay, so uh, well, first off. Um... Roger Ebert referred to this as a cynical exploitation film. I think that's a bit far. I mean, uh, cynical. Okay. 
So you take issue with the exploitation film? A cynical exploit. I mean, when I hear exploitation film, I guess I'm thinking of, you know, things with heavier connotations than this. Well, but this is, um, this is child, you know. Yeah, you yeah. I mean, African-Americans with children and you can have the same sort of thing here because. No, like, I mean, like on reflection, um, like I said, like my when I hear exploitation in the context of a movie, I think of something very specific. Right. But in terms of it being genre. In terms of it being exploitative as any other product, especially, you know, me or someone who will call out exploitative products, then yes, yes, I I see what he means, yeah. He also called it insanely overwritten and mm. ineptly filmed. Mm, I mean, there we go. I wouldn't say it's ineptly filmed, but I, then again... See, I think it's insanely overwritten. Overwritten? Now, that I can't disagree with because many times I just shook my head thinking this is ridiculous. No, I it's think, a I think we've watched film. so many of these terrible films in such like a compressed space. Yeah. That the ineptitude of filmmakers is really a matter of degrees. <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe I I was just pleased that, oh, this one actually looks and feels like a real movie. It does. But like, but then again, like, I mean, look at how much shit I play on Steam and, and I'm still I still yeah, have we a bad have to ask game where the standard is now. <laughs> um you know, I still know quality when I see it, and I wouldn't call this ineptly filmed. Um, no. If no, it, overwritten, it, I don't... It, that one's a tough call. See, I can, um, I can definitely agree with that. And when we get into the synopsis, I'll point out yeah. areas where it's just like, okay, what the fuck are you doing here? Um, yeah, and don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to defend the film. Um, no. I, I just... I guess it's just that I've, I watched it and didn't have a... Didn't have an overly negative view of it. Didn't sure. have an overly positive view of it. It so feels very disposable. Any extreme sounding opinion about it. Like if Roger Ebert was talking about how great it was, how, you know, how it was written really well, I, I'd also be like, mm. it just seems like anything that isn't just, eh, it's a movie. It's an 80s movie. It's, it's stand by me with product placement and not as good as that. <laughs> So, but you brought up uh, the idea of, you know, there being one, like, writer's vision of this and then an executive's vision of this as two different things sort of coming into collision. Yes. I, I actually do agree. I take a more cynical stance on this. Right. Um, if for no other reason than The Wizard came out 364 days exactly <laughs> after Rain Man. Now, I was actually going to point out the Rain Man similarities Yeah, throughout the film. Yeah, there there was... Uh, I was getting this sense that it was like, you know, Rain Man aimed at kids with this advertising also smuggled in. And they, they, they did the filming in June and July uh -huh. of 1989. So they had a few months to get a script, cast it, shoot it. Mm -hmm. and then get it so uh, yeah i really do think that this is just wholesale there yeah there was no collision it was just marketing yes um yeah I, yeah i mean you make a damn good i can't argue with statistics <laughs> i can't argue with the facts on the table um yeah i guess for me i uh i just felt like they like the the non-commercial parts had just enough going on to where to I felt like someone 
tried to, to inject make the family a- drama into this that was somewhat believable and emotionally affecting. And yeah, I will say there was more effort than more effort than it deserved given its goals. Yeah, your mileage may vary on the emotionally affecting aspect of it. Well, um, yeah, I mean, mostly for me, it was giggles. Right, and and I didn't, you know, I don't find, but. You can see where they're trying to apply the tropes, and you can see how they could be effective on some level for a small child. Yeah. You know, that's it. Yeah, that, that's why... That's part of my surprise as to why I hadn't seen it a dozen times like I had Flight of the Navigator. Um, now, I can't speak to Flight of the Navigator's quality, even though I have seen it more times than I could ever count, uh, because I watched all of those in my formative years. I watched it that many, it's the same as Son of Godzilla. Couldn't tell you anything about it now, just vaguely what the sun looks like. Um, but um, with this, it was... Uh, yeah, it's it ticks all those boxes of very easy watching. Um, even though a lot of it doesn't make too much sense and sometimes you're questioning, like, why is this character behaving in this way? It's still... It still like relies so heavily on those tropes that you can just get an easy familiarity with the movie without having to invest too much thought in it. Yeah, um, I guess is the the best way to put it. And yeah, that that that's why it surprises me because those were the kinds of movies, those milk toast movies from the eighties and early nineties that I would watch throughout the the early nineties to the mid nineties. Um, Flight of the Navigator and uh, God, there were others, but I can't remember. Batteries Not Included, I think, was oh, maybe yeah, one of was, them that would yeah. come on a lot. Um, just movies of, of that stripe, you know, inoffensive Sunday afternoon, not, not sleepy big successes, fare. just sort of, you know, light fare. The, yeah, the stuff that doesn't so much smash into pop culture as gets insinuated in a way that. A, a movie well, and it is in a lot of ways, with... I think, those Sunday movies that insinuated them into the yeah, pop culture yeah. so effectively. It was the same reason... I think it's... we've had similar conversations about this before, about how TV, the lack of traditional television exposure now could uh, render some of these movies unseen. But then again, the video on demand might make up for that, because well, anyone can watch I think, any weird I, film. I think it does for those things that have already sort of penetrated the consciousness on some level. Um, but you look at like um, the reason why Night of the Living Dead is the zombie movie and, and everybody knows it and everyone has seen it. The reason mm-hmm. It's a Wonderful Life is the Christmas movie that everyone sees every year is because of the copyrights. And the television stations could show those movies without paying royalties. Yeah. So they yeah. did it every year. You know? There's that one station out here um you know I, I long since what you know gave up cable television myself um and only watched sort of video on demand and stuff like that night networks and things um but, but uh i don't think there's one station those... that shows a christmas story like 24 hours during christmas right because the licensing for it is so cheap yeah and the you know and that's so that's kind of the interesting thing about this that n- none of those films i think would have become so much a part of our popular culture as they have without that sort of repeat drilling the film into us over and over again. Yeah. Well, certainly us as, you know, I mean, I, well, I can only speak for myself, you know, as a poor kid, I, I wasn't going to the movie theaters all the time. No. 
to see these things. They, I, they'd come on TV. That's how I, I watched almost every movie was TV or, you know, rent from Blockbuster. Um, God, we're old and broken and yes, dying. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. We should probably get into this, though, because it's been like close to 30 minutes or something. We ridiculous. should, yes. Um, Fred Savage has come into his own in his adulthood. Oh, God, yes. Oh, he's such a he's such a better actor now, and I'm glad he got into directing and producing. He's brought yeah, some amazing yeah. things. Uh, um, his, his relationship with the always sunny people just brings indeed. me such joy. Yeah. Um, but yes, yes, the wizard. We yeah. like I said, we, this wasn't a joke thing we were doing. <laughs> we will actually talk about it. So now we will. <laughs> We open with a 1 minute and 47 second shot of a child walking along a desert road toward the camera with all-American rock music behind him. Yeah, I, uh, now I'll say this. This movie grabbed my attention more than some of the ones we've watched. Um, as regular listeners will know, I'm prone to sometimes multitask. Um, this one actually held my attention a fair bit, but uh, during this opening crawl, I was checking my emails a lot. <laughs> it is, it, but it is one shot. And mm-hmm. I checked. It is a minute and 47 seconds of one shot of this kid. Yeah, um, and don't don't get me wrong. There are ways that can be effective. Sure. And and, and even with not a lot going on, um, you can do a, a, a shot like that or longer. Um, I mean, I'm a big fan of extended shots. Uh, I love extended shots uh, that are well orchestrated and what have you. But this was just one minute and, and she was one minute 37 47 yeah 47 even worse um one minute 47 seconds of just a nondescript kid just walking a bit and, and it brown wasn't... lots of brown lots of brown scenery yeah it was just it wasn't i guess i guess this is where that inept filmmaking that roger ebert talked about comes in <laughs> right at the yeah this was inept yeah <laughs> Because it's not a good shot. It's not a good way to start your... F- I love I love the way movies start. I've never talked about that. I'm fascinated by the way a movie starts. Um, even if I've got no intention of watching a film, if one's coming on, like if Alex has put one on, I might watch the start just because I'm, I'm, I'm interested in the particular art form of opening a film. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a bad way of doing it. This was bad. This this wasn't the the remake of uh, the Birdcage. This wasn't. Oh, I guess just the Birdcage because it the re uh, it was a remake of the French film. Uh, La Cage à Faux. La Bird de Faux Cage. Um, <laughs> like that's a that is a great opening yeah. to a film across the sea into the club with the the We Are Family. That is one of my favorite movie openings. It's a good film. That is one of my favorite movie openings. Just because of how that shot, mm-hmm. um, the wizard's opening shot isn't isn't the birdcage's opening no. shot. Uh, nor is Nathan Lane in this film. We just have teenage Christian Slater to get by on. A plane flying overhead buzzes the child. It's weird. He's flying really low for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, while a voice were to assume as the pilot says he's found him. And a police officer soon arrives to collect the kid. I don't know, he might be a highway patrol or something. While the plane then buzzes them again. I do not understand this. It's really confusing to me why the plane is flying so low over them twice. 
I'm uh, going to rescind what I said earlier when I said <laughs> Ebert was being harsh. Because now looking back, I do think I was just impressed that it looked more like a film than In the Name of the King 2. <laughs> Future perfect. The kid, who we'll call Jimmy because that's the name the screenwriters gave him, says he's going to California. And we learn from a radio dispatch that he's to be taken to his mother, who has remarried, which seems like an odd detail for the dispatcher to have included. (laughs) That definitely is one of those, you know, as you know moments. It's It's like, it's just for us, but they need... This it is, needs to be in the script somehow. Well, this is the this is the overwritten aspect of it, and it doesn't get better in the next scene, because uh, here we have Jimmy's mother and new husband meeting with some kind of counselor uh, in some program that Jimmy's in, mm-hmm. and Jimmy's struggling with some kind of developmental disability. Now, in this scene, I mean, like it shoves in exposition with all of the grace of a teenager on prom night. <laughs> It reveals that Jimmy has two brothers and a father also in town, that he often wanders off like this, but not to the river, never to the river. And he always carries that lunchbox. Nobody knows what he keeps in it. His new stepdad is kind of a prick, and his counselor hasn't made any progress with him in two years. But she'd like to think that the things he builds mean something. Yeah. And so his parents are going to institutionalize him. Can can I just... um... Do you want to walk back something? Well, I don't want to walk back something just yet. Um, I mean, God, Ebert was completely right. Yeah, uh, I, I rescind all all defense because hearing it back to me, I'm like, yeah, I just remembered the nice bits. Um, <laughs> okay, I yeah, just because there right. are some good bits in the film, but, but hey, I that's that I is forget such a great that, point, and I'm glad you're bringing it up so early because. I, when we were preparing to watch this, I thought back in my memory to, you know, all of that I remembered of this film. And I remembered California and Mm -hmm. and what California means, because I don't want to spoil, we'll get to that. Oh, yeah. Um, I remember Video Armageddon, and that's it. Basically, like and the rem- power glove, of course, is uh, being like the only thing I ever really knew about it was the fact that the power glove was in it. And yes, um, and Lucas and the power glove. But those, that you know, surprised those... me because I thought that the power glove would have a way bigger role the way it was played up in pop culture. Mm-hmm. So seeing it, I was kind of it was like kind of a one scene wonder. Yeah. But again, we'll get there. But it's it, it, that was all I could remember. And then I watched it and I was like, mm-hmm. wow, that was trash. And I went for a walk and I thought back on the film. And I could still only remember like these key things. And <laughs> it's like all the fat gets cut away in your brain, leaving you with what whatever Just, state yeah, the this movie has. Yeah. And I wonder if there's not some sort of glamour over the movie. <laughs> <laughs> they cast ancient magics with a C and a K uh, on this on this movie in nineteen eighty nine, yeah. <laughs> It is ridiculous how easy it is to forget how kind of bad it is. Um, but yeah, um, I did I did want to say, though, the building thing. Mm-hmm. Does that go anywhere? Like, it, I know he builds stuff up through like, later up. It's brought up again, but it's, it's like, I think the point is to demonstrate that it's something he does when he's retreating emotionally. Yeah. 
Okay. But it's not conveyed in a clear enough manner because it doesn't have... Because the movie is so overwritten. Well, Fred, Fred Savage, you know, his character can't immediately draw the conclusion and explain it to the audience as, as he normally would. Yes. That's, that's how we figure things out about Jimmy because Jimmy really doesn't talk much in this film. He's very withdrawn... And, and quiet. And so it's always a, a yeah, thing he's the quiet, in the film. He's the he quiet speaks. kid from Hellraiser 2. Hellbound. Mm-hmm. Hell on Earth. Right. Hellbound. Yeah, exactly. Hell on Earth was the third her. one. Right. <laughs> so we, we cut to uh, Sam Woods, played by Bo Bridges, uh, making a disgusted casserole for his two kids, sexy elder teen Nick and Precocious Corey, played by Christian Slater and uh, Fred Savage, respectively. Now, Corey mentions that he, he saw Jimmy recently, and Jimmy's being sent to a home, and, oh, this must be the other family. Oh, that's who these people are that we've just cut to. Yeah, I had that same reaction watching it. I was like, oh... Oh, this is all connected. Right. It took me a while to like figure out that they weren't like that the Fred Savage's story and Jimmy's story were they were that closely connected. I thought they were gonna like cross paths. And and it's also here in the film that we get the very first real example uh of something this film does a lot, which is conveying information that a character has learned but we're never shown the character learning that information, right? And that's uh, here with Corey and, you know, knowing that Jimmy's going to be sent to the other, uh, sent to an institution and bringing it up to the rest of this family. And I, I mention it now because this one's almost understandable and later it gets a whole lot worse. Uh, this... The raising of this issue starts a fight among the three, and Corey's upset that he's the only one who's upset about Jimmy sent to being sent to a home. Sam is upset about Jimmy being sent to a home, but he is so emotionally uh, damaged by whatever has happened in this family to break it up uh, that he has to deflect it by accusing the elder son, Nick, of having taken the truck without permission and going drinking. And Nick is upset with Corey for bringing up the Jimmy thing that led to all of this. So they're all arguing. They're all upset about three different things. Yes, yes. I'm also a little bit alarmed in this film about how often Christian Slater is portrayed as a wife figure to the dad, who in the movie is his dad. I had not, I had not really thought about that. The way they are written, the, like, from the, the moment they're having their first domestic argument, with Corey, like, listening in the other room as if he's their child. Yeah. Uh, to, you know, the bit where they're in the bed together, like, uh, like, like an old couple. Like, it, it was weird to me. It was an odd way of writing a, a, a father and a son relationship, I thought. It, no, you're right. And, I mean, I... It is an awkward relationship. I hadn't drawn that sort of, you know, uh, maternal fill-in that Christian Slater was was doing. But you kind of you raise an interesting point, and that is a fascinating lens that I may have to watch this again through. Yeah, I mean, like I I don't want people thinking I'm weird. 
it's just that's what it it seemed like right from the off was though the first like argument they have was so much like a married couple and it, it persisted is. yeah yeah it does it persists throughout the film um that kind of relationship that is that is really interesting i just sort of i don't know i i kind of viewed them on some sort of weird equal footing but not not that kind of relationship that's fascinating so uh cory storms out and nick follows and they have a little like you know tete-a-tete about how you know why isn't anyone upset about jimmy and sam tastes the casserole so that he could mug for the camera about how disgusting it is mm-hmm. later nick and sam are still fighting and so cory throws darts at a map of the United States until he hits California and decides to kidnap his brother. Yeah, now I saw this, and this made me laugh, because earlier, when the police picks up uh, Jimmy, he's like, one of the few things that that Jimmy ever says in the movie is California. Yeah, California, and that sort of mawkish, I'm adorable voice that just doesn't work. Um, He's not a good actor. Um... (laughs) Well, you know, okay, so of the of the kids in this movie, he might be the best actor. But he has well, nothing he has to do. Yeah, yeah. I mean that's true of any you give any kid a role where they don't have to do much and they're probably the best of the kid cast. Right. Um but anyway, um he's like when he says he's going to California or what have you, the cops like, everyone's going to California. And when he throws the dart, when Fred Savage throws the dart at the board and just hits California, I'm like, wow, everyone really does want to go. Because it only I took still him four hadn't tries. quite Yeah. <laughs> like I I I just wasn't sure what he was doing. Like I was like, is he just trying to pick a place to run away from his yes, you know, I think that's what from he his was domestic doing. household? Yeah. And it just happens to land on the place where his brother wants to go. Um And so he decides and again, at oh, this point, I'm gonna I take s- my brother there, yeah. That's and, what's supposed to be there. And that However, wasn't clear to me. However, it is ineptly filmed. It is ineptly filmed and overwritten. <laughs> so I thought he was just planning to run away. The other kid was trying to keep going to California, and they were just cross paths going to California. Along, yeah. yeah. So I just, I was like, like sneering at the movie for having just such a ridiculously contrived, conven- like convenient plot point to get them on the same road. I'm like, well, that's a contrivance. Everyone does want to go to California for reasons. Uh, and it turns out, no, there was a reason for them going. And he threw the dart to, I don't know why I was throwing darts even. I mean, that just adds to the confusion. That's, that's inept filmmaking, that's... Conrad Zimmerman. <laughs> well, they, they had to add in some additional justification. When he has this brother, he knows the brother. He's got to know the brother says California all the time. How has no one drawn the conclusion that he's always going to California and just going west to find him all the time? Yeah. And given that it's implied the the, the stepdad in the mix, uh, Bateman, uh, on, you know, on the, the, the jerk ass. Yeah, I'm going to call um, him Mr. Prick going forward. Mr. Prick, you know, because these films need to have the that guy the, the, who's the evil and has money. doesn't understand his uh, de- developmentally disabled charge. Yeah. Yes, and uh, only cares about that boy and not his brothers because they're and only the cares about him because he has a father. legal obligation to care for. Yes, him. but I'm like, he's got so much fucking money. It's implied, certainly. 
Yeah. That, you know, he's some big hotshot rich. Just fucking pop him on a plane to California. Figure out what like, he needs. Yeah. Like, you know, pay for, like, Christian Slater as a, you know, the responsible older brother or something. Look after him if if Mr. Prickman doesn't want to do it. Just take him to fucking California. Yeah, it's this is this was there was an easy fix for all of this. Yes. So, uh, Corey takes a bus to the new address he has. And just open Jim. up the lunchbox if you, when he's asleep if you're curious about what's inside it. He's a kid. Yeah, yes, nobody has thought to take the lunchbox and open it. No well, one wants to like, open scream it. Scream like a banshee when you take it. Like for something that's so overwritten, how do you miss that detail? Honestly, like, like if a kid is clutching a box that tightly, and they are, you know, there's some... enough. Especially if you're talking about like institutionalizing the child, <laughs> Maybe you're just gonna like what you're is. gonna. Yeah, is is he just gonna like go into said institution just with the box unchecked? Like, there could be all sorts of things in there. Mm-hmm. Knives, lighters. So, uh, he takes this, he goes to this address that he has for Jimmy, which is, I guess, the institution. He got moved in really quick. Like, that was another thing as well. I the was passage like, of time. Is this where he lives it. forever? Has he always lived here? Like, they were just talking about, like, yeah, like, it. When does this take place? <laughs> How much time has passed between when Corey stormed out of the house because of the fight and then the subsequent later fight? Like, it's, it's implied that it happens, like, in the same 24-hour period almost. It's just, like, later in the day that this argument's still going on. But they hadn't moved the kid into the institution yet by that, so now he's suddenly there. Yeah, like, apparently you can just throw anyone into, like, Kitty Jacob's ladder at whim. <laughs> So he sneaks into this institution, moving room to room in search of his brother, pausing to gawk at some people with disabilities and look sympathetic. Weird. Yeah. Well, he looks sympathetic while the camera is like, you know, look at these scary people. Yeah. As Uh, I say, Kitty Jacob's ladder. Upon finding Jimmy, the pair sneak out and climb into the back of a hostess truck, which was making a delivery to the institution. What's one more placed product? Cut to Sam and Nick arriving with a police officer at the institution another vague amount of time later to discuss the missing children. Okay. Again, with the cramming into the exposition. Yeah, or the explanations, I guess. Yeah. Also, there's Jimmy's mother and Mr. Prick, who's still kind of a prick, and has hired another prick named Putnam who specializes in finding runaways and wearing bolo ties. Yes. Uh, but Putnam's not there for Corey because Corey's a lost fucking cause, according to Mr. Prick. Yeah. Uh, and on the way and out... And the mother's going along with this. Yes, the mother seems fine with this. Now, this yeah, it's is... like, find my one son. The now, other, this... like, like my ex has custody of the others. They're a write-off. But they're, Just not, find his... the they're one. not her children. Nick and Corey are not her kids. Right. See, okay. I had that weird, like, I was, like, like wondering if that was the case, but I wasn't sure enough to draw a conclusion. It does, yeah, it does get explained later uh, in the scene. It's either in the scene where Corey's explaining the family history to uh, 
No, it's 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 when Nick and Sam are in the bed together. It's explained that their mother died. Oh, Nick, Nick and Corey's right, mother died. yeah. See, I remember that bit, and I remember the bed scene, obviously. I guess maybe that's like... I was too busy analysing that scene to then pay attention to plot about stuff that was relevant at the beginning of the movie. Yeah, Nick and Corey's mother passed away. Sam remarried... Uh, what's her name? Uh, yeah. They had Jimmy had and Jimmy. Jennifer. And then after the event... Um, Sam and this woman split. She remarries. So, yeah. And then she she got custody of her kids and then etc. Yes, exactly. Um, and yeah, he, he got the other ones. But even so, it seems incredibly insensitive to say pick up the one boy and leave the other one stranded in fuck knows where. Yes, exactly. That's that's fucked. And and this guy, uh, clearly the kind of asshole who probably wouldn't call. And say, hey, here's the other one. You can come get it. <laughs> because on the way out, he tries to intimidate Sam and Nick, warning them not to get in between him and a little kid. Yes. Now, uh, I've got issues with with this film. Um, obviously, every scene with this, um, what's his name? Putnam. Lutzman Putnam. Every scene with Putnam in it is an unfortunate implication yes, in motion yes. constantly constantly he's he's a, he's the child catcher from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang without any of the fantasy elements <laughs> he's just a child snatcher right um, a child snatcher the... who who is justifying his child snatching interests his hobby by being <laughs> a private dick that snatches kids which is also a little bit alarming because because if like there are people whose jobs are to find missing children, yes, and missing people, and you know, because it's their job, they do make money doing it. So I was also a little bit alarmed at, at especially like a line that comes later when it's like you're exploiting children for money. It's like, but but that is a, that is real jobs, it's isn't a, it? It's a legitimate job. It's just and it's not exploitation. This guy as a scumbag. Who's yeah, it's only like this guy is motivated. There's no doubt this guy is a scumbag, but the way the film is like the way the film positions it, it's almost as if anyone in that role is a scumbag. Well, as compared to the noble, you know, parents who are in yes, church. it's it's the noble parent like doing it for themselves, the working class parent going out there looking for his boy, versus you know someone who would get paid to do it. Therefore, a cynical, slimy prick. Right. Um, and again, it's the other unfortunate implication is, uh, like, I get that these are, like, antagonistic characters, Mr. Prickman and and Putman, uh, Putnam, uh, on a low-key scale. Yeah. But, I mean, basically admitting to a father that you are going to try and stop him finding his own son... I think is a criminal offense and certainly it certainly makes dark. you sound yeah like it is it, there was just something about it that was like that is not that is weird like it's not just villainous it's weird villainous and not in a good way I'd also like to take this moment to point out how incredibly fucking incompetent everybody is in this scenario and I'll tell you why first of all um 
we're going to get another one of these horrible examples of somebody learning information and conveying it, but not conveying how they really learned the information or the film not conveying how they learned the information. Because it's in this scene in the institution office that it's revealed that they were seen climbing into the back of the hostess truck. They know they're in the hostess truck. Were it me? Were it me? Were I the police officer that was there in that room? And there is a police officer in that room. Undubitably, yeah. Indubitably, I should say. I would say, well, shit, why don't we call the Hostess Distribution Center, find this guy's schedule, and see where he went next? And we could, you know, maybe call ahead and stop him. Yeah. I mean, it would be a less exciting film. <laughs> that's that's what I would have done. <laughs> Uh, that is not what happens. Uh, in the next scene, we see the hostess truck stopping at a gas station in the middle of the desert and the driver announcing very helpfully to the guy that works at the gas station that it's his last stop. <laughs> so the kids know to get out. Yes. Uh, Good for them. So the kids do get Lucky out. Lucky for them, that truck driver is so loud and expository. <laughs> <laughs> they hop out of the truck into a montage. Of them making their way down the road. Yeah. Which culminates in them finally bringing up the subject of Corey's favorite hostess treat, the ho-ho, several minutes into this this montage. (laughs) Wouldn't they have discussed that in the truck at some point? Why is it only coming up now? Maybe they were too busy, like, just eating the things in the truck. And then when they got out the truck, they then spoke about the things they ate. And then they, they, well, Jimmy doesn't say anything, obviously. It's just, it's just Corey talking. Corey just runs his mouth about what he scoffed down. And there can't, oh, he's a ho-ho man. You Mm -hmm. see. Uh, Well, who isn't? And and they wind up camping overnight in Goblin Valley State Park. (laughs) Um, uh, I'm disappointed when when I hear Goblin Valley and and it is just a place. it It is not just a place. It's a place in Utah. Uh, Worse in a way. It is, and it is a real place. Um, oh yeah, yeah, but but it's not. It's not a real place though. Because there are no real not, goblins there. Because in my mind, Goblin Valley is very different from Goblin Valley, Utah. So <laughs> Goblin Valley is not a real place. There is a real place called Goblin Valley, but rest rest assured, there is no real Goblin Valley. <laughs> the uh, next day, they make it to a bus station where Corey attempts to buy a bus ticket, uh, putting Jimmy on a double dragon machine to keep him occupied. But he discovers that he's about $200 short of a ride to Los Angeles. Uh, This commotion with him talking to the uh, ticket salesman draws the attention of a young woman who then also observes Corey's concern at seeing police officers pull up and follows him and uh, Jimmy into a storage room at the bus station. Okay, people just do that? And yeah, then, yeah, yeah, it's standard practice in the 80s. And then she threatens to scream if she doesn't tell, if, if, if they don't tell her what they're up to. Chekhov's scream. This, this is her tactic. This is her strategy to get what she wants. She threatens to scream. Um, and then gets interested in them when she learns that uh, 50 scored, or Jimmy scored 50K in Double Dragon. 
which, yeah, yeah I guess that, that is pretty impressive. Uh, they agree to make a bet, uh, and Haley has to sell her own bus ticket in order to have enough cash to make the bet. Uh, Jimmy wins. Uh, this is a nitpick, and I, I recognize that, and this is just me being an asshole. Um, but the numbers in this movie, no one fucking cares. No one fucking cares. The high score on that machine is 29,000 points. I mean... If Jimmy had scored over 50,000 points, that would have been the high score in the machine. And since he was pulled away from it prematurely, the high score would have been AAA, you know, or, or blank or something. But it would have registered that score. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, but anyway... Well, I mean... Later on, we're going to get to a point where I can't tell if they're racing for progress or points. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even though they explain quite literally what they are racing for, the visuals and what was happening conveyed other things. No, it's so completely confusing. <laughs> um, Almost as if the filmmaking's inept. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Roger. Like... So Nick and Sam are on the road looking for the boys, but they've been going the wrong way for hours. And then Sam nearly gets them killed looking at the map. Comedy. In a diner, Haley. These gets boys the... are going to die. It's hilarious. In a diner, Haley gets the idea to use Jimmy as a hustler to make money and suggests if they're going to California, Jimmy can enter into the video Armageddon contest happening there in a few days for a fifty thousand dollar prize, and they can split the winnings. Yeah, I loved. I loved the the hustle scene. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because what? I I don't know. <laughs> Who are those men? Well, we'll get, and to, why? We'll, get to we'll get to those men. Uh, <laughs> Putnam stops in at another diner looking for clues, but he sees Sam and Nick's truck, so he pops their tires to slow them down. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Again, I, I do believe not only, you know, is it an, an obvious criminal offense to slash someone's tires, but again, I'm sure there must be something against, like, deliberately trying to stop a son reach his child. You'd think. I'm sure there is a specific law. There must be some something in, in the legal system. Someone in the comments, like, let me know. Like, like, it's got to be extra bad than just slashing tires. It's like you slashed his tires to stop him, to stop him from finding his son. At this point, you are a kidnapper. You're you're a remote kidnapper. Well, and then this drives Sam to attack Putnam's car with a shovel. In this like enraged, just bashing sequence. Yes, it, it's very much act. It's really very similar to uh, Michael Jackson destroying that car in the black and white video. I bet that's where they took that. I, I mean, I they're really taking everything else. It's it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a shock at this point. Uh, Although the way he threw the shovel at the end, like a trident, as Putnam <laughs> was driving off, I was I was all geared up for that. But then he threw it, and it was a bad throw, and they kept that take. So the kids get a ride on a sm- on a on a cattle truck, and we learn that Haley's father is a trucker, which is why they're traveling with these truckers because Haley's like they've got a code. Uh, her mother was a showgirl who split, um, the truckers, upon seeing the money that the kids have, they pull over and steal it from them, leaving them broke on the side of the road. (laughs) It's like a hundred bucks they've got, too. It's not like... Uh, I know, it's just... (laughs) 
like it's it's not obviously the concept of of a of a grown adult man stealing from three children isn't funny but it is an oddly comical scene in the way it's shot in the movie yeah like it's just so like what like it's sudden as well it's this sudden like i was like whoa now he's just stealing from him <laughs> And if I remember, like, the, the theft is fairly wordless. Like, it's not... Yeah, it's, just, just give me the money, give me the money. Yeah, like, it's it, it's not, like, played up, like, like a later scene with bullies and things. It's just a straightforward robbery in this film of children who clearly need... That they are abandoning to be, like, you know, kidnapped by roving gangs of pedophiles or fucking just brutally murdered somewhere or... Get into drugs. Street drugs. <laughs> Conrad. It's dangerous. Like, it's just a weird film. Like, I I suppose don't trust adults. I mean, don't trust strangers, etc. Obviously a, a massive... Stranger danger massive messaging and Yeah, like, late 80s, early 90s, strangers and house fires were the two big things. I don't know what it is these days. Probably internet. Um, you know, don't talk to people on the internet. But in, in our day, it was stranger danger, as, as you point out. Uh, and I suppose that could be a part of the message of this film, in that everyone older than them who they interact with who isn't their father is a complete, you know, schlode. But, again, there's... I don't know if I'm... There's just something disturbing about the way these kids are dicked over by older people who should know better in this film. Like, consistently. Yeah. So Sam gets new tires, and he's upset that they're white walls. Meanwhile, Nick is uh, playing Super Mario Brothers on the TV in the repair shop. Great graphics. Um, I just want to point out. Uh, great graphics on a great system. Uh, well worth the price. <laughs> and, and, um, and, yeah, uh, this... Oh, that reminds <laughs> me. That reminds me. Did, did... Yeah. I, did I show you the tweet from the guy who... Yes! On Pixels? If you listen to our Pixels uh, commentary track from two weeks ago, uh, we, we were talking about the Mini Coopers a lot. Yes, because there was a big Mini Cooper product placement in the movie. And, and so we got a tweet from someone who I... I, I presumably worked on the visual effects for Pixels. I mean, as near as we can tell, they worked on the visual... And we did praise the visual effects even outside the Mini Cooper. Yeah. And they seemed generally pleased that we liked that bit of it. But, uh, yeah, apparently, apparently the, uh, someone who worked on the visual effects for Pixels listened to the commentary and, uh, and, and I at just, least they seem to enjoy it. I, wanna, I, wa- I bring it up because I want to say to this person, God bless you. I mean, I know what you probably had to go through to do that job. I'm sure it didn't pay nearly enough. And I, I suspect that you, you do bear some deep subconscious regret for what you contributed to I mean, bringing to the world. Yeah, like remorse if not outright guilt. And that's a dark place to be. Uh, so I just I, I want you to know that uh, we're here for you. And well, we care. Conrad's here for you. I mean, reach <laughs> reach out, but not to me. <laughs> I will not truck with you. So so Nick has hooked up this Nintendo to the TV in the back of this auto repair shop. As you do. Sam points out how kind of weird that is. 
Yeah, and Christian Slater just says, "Eh." Well, he's like he's, he really just sort of hand waves it away. Well, he, you know, I think I think the intent was to show how easy it is to connect it to any television. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Um, God, it, it's weird when you're seeing the corporate cynicism before I do. <laughs> um, especially not that you're not good at sniffing it out. It's just I normally, yeah, you're I've, I've got right my automatic of it, hatred yeah. of them. Yeah. Um, but yes, you're right. It's it really is. Like I was just gonna like harp on. I was gonna sarcastically talk about great graphics this whole podcast every time a, a video game was shown. But no, you're right. It's it's more than that. Oh it, no, it runs it runs deep through this. Uh, the, yeah. the placement and the the attention to conveying Nintendo in a positive, which is really it is it's strange. almost as if. The film is overwritten and inept yeah. because because of how like the scenes showing off the video games, especially with what you just pointed out, are so well crafted. Mm-hmm. Like evil in a manner. Yeah. I mean, I I I go as this is a big reversal from me earlier saying exploitative's a bit much. <laughs> evil, <laughs> satanic in a way. But would you call it cynically uh, a cynical exploitation film? Again, I can't argue with the fact. (laughs) Like, even though my brain still only remembers the good bits, and you're like, like reminding me in real time, like, like, and the rest, like, the movie's already like fading away into obscurity from what we were talking about earlier. So I, I can only now think about um, wherever we were at, which was uh, the, the the video game in the repair shop. Right. Um, but yeah, I can't argue with the facts. Uh, this this seeing scene. the evidence relayed back to me, uh, this is a, uh, an exploitative, cynically exploitative movie and evil. <laughs> What's interesting about this seed, though, is that it does bear the one one instance that I have found that might paint the Nintendo Entertainment System in a negative light. <gasps> Specifically, that Sam suggests that the uh, NES was broken, and Nick says that he has fixed it. Yes, yes. And now, I don't know if they were trying to say that it's, uh, if it breaks, it doesn't matter, because you can easily put it together. But, yeah, it was an odd way to introduce what they're selling. Well, and it, it, is, it, it is, you know, known... I mean, I don't think necessarily. I don't know by if by this point in history, uh, this had really come to be a serious problem. But uh, those front-loading NES machines, you know, that whole thing with the blowing on them to get them to work. What was really happening there is the pins inside the the um, the machine. That, that, you know, attach to the cartridge and read the information, they would bend back over time mm-hmm. and cause a loose connection. And dust could interfere with that, certainly, but it was really much more about repeated use of the machine and that front-loading tray designed to make this look like an entertainment appliance and not a video game system. Right. Because retailers were all in a panic following the video game crash. Of course, yeah. Um, so over time, that push in and hinge down to make the connection, it would bend the pins back and they would stop making the connection. So you could repair an NES. Uh, you certainly, you know, 
uh, it, it got harder and harder to repair things over time. You could actually do that. You can still get replacement sockets for these. And I used to work in a game repair shop, and I'd fix them all the time. Yeah. Um, now, now all of this is fine in a movie set in, say, 2017. Right. Um, but a movie set at a time where you are actively selling NESs. It's awkward, and right? And have a movie framed around the reveal of a, a game for it. Um, and, and and the yeah. in a lot of and I, I I don't have like I haven't done the research to confirm this, but I do think a big part of the reason why the top load Nintendo was subsequently released was to address this problem, uh, because those yeah. those top loaders never wear out. Um, they don't they don't have that hinge uh, click <laughs> thing that bends the pins. Well, there you go. So you're learning facts. There you go. No facts that you'd learn in this film because they just say it was broken. And, and Christian Slater fixed it, uh, which is, again, just, yes, yeah, spot-on way to uh, introduce the Nintendo Entertainment System As to a, a thing potentially paying audience. Yeah, yeah to, <laughs> to your future customers. Uh, the kids hitch a ride to another town, and Haley calls Corey on the $4 he has hidden in his underwear. Now, remember, they were robbed. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's still got 4 bucks, so they're still in the game. They go into a bar... So, uh, kids are just allowed to walk into bars. Nobody, nobody tries to stop them from walking into this bar. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, that's, again, another theme in this is uh, the kids just running rampant. Going really pretty much wherever they want and nobody questioning it. Yeah. Yeah, only only until after the things that need to be accomplished are done, just to maybe show a slight element of conflict, like the casino scene, for example. Oh, right, yes, um, exactly. Perfectly fine to have them shouting and yelling for the whole scene and just have them thrown out afterwards just because they realize oh yeah we do need to show that this wouldn't be allowed but until they ever have to like properly do things like that it's the kids just want to wherever they want right so they they go into this bar they're inquisitors they're inquisitors in the 40k universe (laughs) (laughs) so cory picks out a couple of businessmen playing a game that Jimmy's a businessman, right? Yeah, just just two businessmen. I mean, I suppose... they look like used car salesmen. I, mean, I think, or, or like they own the they own small dealerships. Yeah, there was there drunk. probably was a time when adult men in bars played video games. I'm sure that that right. was the case. I'm I'm sure of it too. I mean, growing up as a kid, it wasn't unusual to see a Smash TV or a. a uh, Final Fight arcade machine in a pub. Oh, they were everywhere. Like, yeah, you know, yeah, of course yeah. they were. You wouldn't see what I can, looking at it, I would say late 60s, <laughs> early 70s even, two old, like, your granddad men. They look They look like they are They are fresh off of uh, the set of Glengarry Glen Ross. <laughs> Honestly. Really? I mean, and they got this element of sleaze to them. They're drinking and they're playing arcade machines. Now, if they were young, you know, like yuppie businessmen, I mean, it's the fucking 80s. If they were younger businessmen around the arcade machine, that I get. That doesn't look odd. But these two old, grody, (laughs) small dealership car lot guys who then go on to make wages with children over video games <laughs> in a bar 
where the children aren't questioned. Nothing, nothing wrong about this at all. Totally normal. Uh, so they can why win. they were. S- I'm not saying if you're old you can't play video games. No, please. We're rapidly approaching that that time. Well, I mean, yeah, we already are in that state of affairs. Like, I feel like I'm fucking eighty, if nothing else. But in a movie, it's just so odd to see two men who it's not even just the age. Everything about their look and even their performance speaks why are they in why why are they gathered around why aren't they smoking cigars out in the back of the bar or something uh-huh. or in the 80s it would be in the bar why are they not talking why aren't to they smoking why are they talking to children why are they making bets with children why are they hanging around by arcade machines i mean it's just an and i'm not even saying that for haha unfortunate implications because there's there's no hint of that in the scene. Well no, but uh, it w- it's just what are these odd men doing? But it is kind of a very strange thing in that context too because um there's a a, a podcast called Showcase um which I happened upon because uh, you know Polybius is like really really big right now like the last couple of years for some reason this Polybius urban legend has gained tremendous cultural awareness suddenly sure yeah and yeah. It took me a moment to remember the the strings of it but yeah yeah, yeah i'm with you and now. so uh this podcast showcase they do uh long form stories in multiple chapters and they did one on polybius and mm-hmm. specifically a guy in portland who was is i don't know giving tours of um the city doing walking tours relating to the polybius myth who claimed to have been kidnapped by shadowy agents related to the game. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, you should go listen to it. But but part of this story involves a sort of dark underbelly operating at this arcade where older men were going to meet younger men for sex. Mm-hmm. And so knowing that that was actually going on at arcades at least in the early 80s, seeing this creeps me the right the fuck out. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. this just horrifies. Really, if once you're done listening to us spout this nonsense, uh, go check out Showcase the Polybius Conspiracy. It's, it's a really interesting, fascinating story. Uh, so they, uh, they take these businessmen for all they've got, and... Uh, that night, find a place to sleep in a junkyard, and we get to learn more about Haley uh, well, in another good. exposition-filled scene. Uh, she's basically abandoned by her father because he's always on the road trucking, but she's okay because she's got all these friends, and she can take care of herself. And then Corey puts on a mask in an attempt to scare her to prove that, oh, you know, there's not nothing she's scared of, and she punches him. And it's comedy. Yeah. Right there. No, yeah, and also it's what he gets for trying to neg her. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> like, I have my problems with Haley as a character. I think that she, you know, uh, puts forth some kind of dangerous ideas into the culture. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There are, I mean, the only, the, the saving grace with, with Haley is she's responsible for the only time in the movie I genuinely laughed. Yeah. 
not specifically at the movie, right? Because it it was trying to be funny, and it is, and so it, it achieved... and it was just so unexpected in its suddenness and its delivery. Yeah, that I was like, I, my jaw hung open, like I was just, it was so out of nowhere, and and she brings that, which is more than any other character in this movie brings. The next morning, they're on the road again. And they get a ride from some bikers. And this is a weird yes. weird setup. Because they're sitting there on this rock and these bikers pull up. And, like, my first thought is, oh, shit, they're screwed again. Yeah. Well, right. we've been trying to expect that. Yeah. And, and I think the scene is trying to set that up a little bit. But then all of a sudden, they're just on the back of the motorcycles. They're like, hey, cool bikers. Nobody better for a child to be crossing the country with than, you know... A motorcycle club. That's it. Yeah, I mean, if you uh... <laughs> like, wait a minute. Who are we? Who are we sending signals about to trust here? This I mean, that's that's the point. Yeah, it's like don't trust. Don't trust a man who has legal custody to come and get you. Right. Um, don't trust your parents. Don't trust. Yeah. Yeah, cops are assholes. Oh yeah. No. I mean that's established at the beginning. I mean, mm, that, I mean fair dues on that one. Um, a group of hell's angels show up. Group of group of hell's angels show up. Uh the sons of silence turn up on your door. Um any of them uh just say yes. Uh most of them will take you for free. Uh but if you do have some meth, it's good to share. Uh Not that there aren't some nice biker gangs. No, I sure. mean there's a uh, some like like an old like group of older bikers out here, and they're adorable. Um, and actually, the Sons of Silence do come into Denny's sometimes, and uh, that's uh, they just eat their breakfast. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it's an odd thing that that these uh, these bikers pick them up without incident, while literally everybody else screws them over. And again, maybe there's something to be said there for perceptions. For, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. I suppose. But the movie doesn't say any of these things ever about any of their messages. And because there are no messages. These are just things they've seen in other films that they've put in here. Um, they know that a road trip has to happen and transport has to happen. So just throw in some bikers here. Deus Ex Biker. Uh, and, and there you go. Take them right into a montage. Another montage for everyone to enjoy. Um... Yeah, it's. I think that's the main problem with this film is it keeps sending out the wrong messages because it's only real messages by Nintendo. Nintendo. Yeah, yep. and so everything else isn't thought about, uh, and so we end up with long rambling scenes of exposition, coupled with scenes that just look awkward and inappropriate and have unfortunate implications, or look like they're trying to say something. But whatever they're trying to say is garbled and confused by other things in the film. And so in this montage, we get to see everybody making their way uh, westward over uh, Send Me an Angel. Um, fun. Uh, mm -hmm. Putnam does try to assault the wrong kids at one point because from behind it looks like, you know, it's Corey and Jimmy and it turns out not to be. And that's very funny. Um in another town, Jimmy beats a group of kids at a racing game, and after collecting their winnings, another kid there tells our plucky gang about Lucas, a local kid who's probably better than Jimmy. 
So they go to meet. Well, Lucas. he he is better than Jimmy because he's got henchmen. Yes, he does. One one of whom does look like Child General Hugs, and one of them um, becomes the Spider Man. One of them becomes the Spider Man, and he's got like long eighties hair, and sort of the jacket. Like he's got eighties bad, like as bad as you can look at like twelve or however old he was. In the 80s. Yeah, it's kind of a curly, a little, you know, thick style. Yeah, he's he's every kid villain you've seen in an an 80s film, basically. So you know that initially he's going to be better. And and so he's they they go meet him and and, uh, Lucas decides to challenge them. But first he's going to show off the awesome power of the power glove. Now he's playing with power, this... as Freddy Krueger would say when it found its way inexplicably into one of those films. Well, it, it wasn't in, well, it wasn't inexplicable. Bob Shea, uh, the producer of um, the Nightmare on Elm Street films, wanted the power glove in uh, Nightmare uh... on Elm Street. Oh yeah, and Nin- you remembered more of that four-hour documentary than I did. Yes, and Nintendo <laughs> didn't want it. They, they wouldn't consent to allowing it, and so Bob just said, "Fuck him," and put it mm-hmm. in anyway. Yeah, yeah. Bob Shay's an interesting individual. Fascinating guy. Yes, never sleep again. If you've not s- the Elm Street yeah, I was about- documentary, uh, it is f- like four hours long. But you can find uh, it used to be on Netflix. It's no longer there, I don't think. But you can find the whole thing on YouTube, broken into like three segments. Yeah, um, I'm fairly certain it's on Amazon as well. If you uh, are the paying sort, but uh, yeah, it's I've I've watched that. Twice, I think. Oh, yeah, me too. Um, yeah, it's in fact, I just watched it again last week. Oh, well, there you go. You remember the Power Glove more readily than yeah, I do. Yeah, it's very fresh. If, um, and, and I think the same production company did a Friday the 13th series also. They did, and I have it on, like, I think I have it on DVD, but even though I like Friday the 13th, well, I like Jason Voorhees more than I like Freddy yeah. Krueger. Um, I mean, I I'm more did, of a Freddy Krueger guy that because I like, the, I, like, I like how comical he became. How much of a I mean, that's when he got good for me. Like, I, I say much to everyone's chagrin that my favorite is Freddy's Dead, The Final Night. That's a great movie. Because to me, that that's the Freddy that I like. Was the, Just so I mean, over-the-top silly, yeah. Yeah, and I'll say the same thing for Friday the 13th. Once that realized what it was... Jason Goes to which, Hell, I love. I Jason love Goes to Jason Hell is Hell. utterly ridiculous. Yeah. Um, Jason Lives, which is the first... It was the first Friday the 13th movie I ever saw. Before then, they were all a bit moribund. The first one obviously had that conceit that that made it stand out. Mm -hmm. Um, But the sixth one, I think it was the sixth one, uh, Jason Lives, was when it just was like, we we know we're making trash. And so they started putting comedy in it with Jason as sort of the deadpan reactor. And and it just became a much better film. And then we had things like, you know, Takes Manhattan and everything and, and... and and then it was great. And these movies got really good, I think, once they finally... Others would disagree, of course. Others would say they were better when they played the horror more straight, but... Well, I, mean, I think that I that's it true when they got fun. If, if the only film in the series is the first one. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that holds true for Friday the 13th, too. I mean, for Nightmare on Elm Street, too. Uh, not that Nightmare on Elm Street 2 isn't an interesting film. It is interesting. And 3 definitely has some great stuff. But from a horror perspective... The only one that's worth a damn is the first one. And then from there, it just has to get progressively sillier in order to be interesting. 
And and it's yeah. not until Freddy's Dead: The Final Nightmare that they finally throw off the shackles and they say, you know what? Yeah, why are we even bothering? Yeah, yeah. And, but but the wizard. We're talking about the wizard. The wizard. <laughs> Uh, and the power glove, and and it is. Uh, I mean, this is the scene everyone knows. This is the one that, if you've never seen the wizard, you've probably seen this scene just by osmosis of video. Like, again, culture. like like I thought the power glove was a lot more plot relevant because of how famous it is in this. And it is, uh, boy, the way he moves his. It is. It has no grounding in reality. <laughs> no. Well, I mean, for a, for a start, he's better than someone else using it. Yeah, that's. I mean, that doesn't work. But intimidated by Lucas, Corey gets defensive of his burgeoning relationship with Haley, putting his arm around her, you know, like, stay away from my woman type deal. Yeah, basically, like, claiming her, even though yeah. she had no understanding that this was a thing. Yeah, and she's, she seems like, she's like, what? yo, what the fuck? Like, you see the expression yes. on her face when he puts his arm around no, her? No, but she calls him out later on it, yep. and rightly so. Yep. Um, but, yeah, for, for our hero, like, even though he's, he does rightly get called out on it, it's, again, it's not that the movie isn't calling out the bad things as bad a lot of the time. Most of them. There, there's sh- one that is, like, woof. I mean, there is, yeah, like, I mean, it, it, I, I just, it's not that the movie is consistently not questioning stuff. Right. Or, or showing a bad thing as bad. It's just the level and the awkwardness of it being done is jarringly, un, like, almost unnatural. Like, it's just so... There's a level of over-the-toppedness mm-hmm. that mixed with the relatively mundane nature of the movie doesn't work. So that when your over-the-top villain in Putnam is slashing tires, it's like, yeah, in a heist movie or something or he's trying to stop them get to a a treasure before he does yeah okay boo that bad villain but not in this sort of grounded family drama thing yes when he's slashing tires to stop a father get to his like alone child who who could very well be in danger like that's weird and same for this it's like you want to call out that oh he's overstepped some boundaries or he's trying too hard to impress someone but the way they chose to do it is just awkward and weird and just suddenly like in the course of zero to 10 puts me up to, Oh, suddenly this character is a creepazoid. Yeah. Suddenly he's weird and, and awkward and he wasn't before. And, and that, that, that's another part It's just, they just decide they need to have a moment in the film. So they just do it. This is inept and overwritten. <laughs> Jimmy backs off from showing his skills to Lucas. And that's the other thing, is that we can't say whether or not Jimmy's better or worse than Lucas, because they never compete at this point. No, no. So we know that Lucas is good. We know that Jimmy is good. But we do not know if Lucas is actually better than Jimmy, only that Jimmy seems to think Lucas might be better than Jimmy. So he backs off. Cut to Sham. Sham. <clears throat> okay. Cut to. S- I, I think you're just describing the movie. I think there. I am. Uh, cut to Sam. Back to the Sham. Sam and Nick sharing a crappy hotel room bed. And uh, Nick tries to get Sam to talk and open up about their family trouble. 
uh, talking about, you know, oh, mom's gone. And this this is the point at which I guess now, like 40 minutes into the film, we're getting the explanation that, you know, these are separate kids. Yeah. And, and that their actual mom, that their mom is dead and this was stepmom. And so, like, this is the part where it clarifies the familial relationship <laughs> 40 minutes in. Thanks. For Very that. good of them to do so. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sam still can't process all of this stuff, even though, you know, it's still been two years. Uh, and he emotionally shuts down. So Nick grabs the NES from the truck and starts playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles to, Sh- to Sam's chagrin. Now, this is a, uh, I want to again point out that they are carrying around this NES with them. And despite that one instance where they dis- they mentioned that the NES had been broken and has since been fixed by Nick, which is I guess to i don't know why actually i don't I don't know why nick needed to fix that why that line is there why it needs to be like i thought for a second oh maybe they need to suggest that nick is handy like his father like they have that thing in common or but his his dad's a landscaper he's not a mechanic he's not doing any of the work i, I don't understand i'm just so it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense um it makes sense when you again just keep in mind that they characters and situations they're mutable for the purposes and, of selling yeah, a product that's the best way of yeah you put it better than i i was headed that they, they are mutable to sell the product and, and and in that vein here when we see because his ability to fix things never comes up as a plot point no nope you think like oh you know the controller has been interfered with by the evil lucas later on christian slayer could come and fix it you know like no, it's just uh, some character detail that's tossed in, in a, that's focused on, well, not focused on, it's sort of passed by, but it's put in there. Yeah. for To serve no purpose. I think it's telling, and I know I'm jumping ahead, but I think it's telling that the fucking finale of this movie, the big tournament, there are no shenanigans in it. We're just watching a video game being played and some numbers going up. Like, there's no rivalry between Lucas and Jimmy. There's no, like, him trying to cheat or maybe, like, use the power glove because it's so much better to surreptitiously yeah. get the edge. The, the like, there's closest, none of that. The closest thing is Lucas sort of lightly attempting to sabotage Jimmy's ability to compete. Yes, uh, which will lead to a moment which I'll say for when we get there that really fucking annoyed me about the inept filmmaking and overwriting of this movie. Um, but we'll get to that bit. Sorry, please no, continue. No, that's, that's fine. But it's what I wanted to point out about this scene at the hotel where uh, Christian Slater retrieves the NES from the truck is that when he does so, and, and we saw this with Lucas too, everybody has a container that they keep all of their games in. You know, one of these slotted cases with a handle, there's an imitation leather, it's got a clasp, and you open it up. And, and I mean, I, I knew a lot of people that had similar things back when the NES was, you know, a going concern and so forth. But it's so interesting to show the care with which all of these cartridges are attended to. Like, everybody keeps them in their protective sleeves, in the boxes... Until the t- such time as they're playing them. It's Nintendo showing us how to take care of the things so that we don't break them and complain to Nintendo. Right. Like, the NES, after he pulls it out of the truck, there's not a game already in the system. I have never no. seen an NES 
that had been in use where there wasn't at present a game in the console when someone decided to use it. Yeah. That's just not... No, I, I've... It, it's not real. It's the least realistic part of this film. <laughs> right? Like, these kids hitchhiking across two states to compete in a video game tournament? Totally believable. I'll go along with it. I'll, I can suspend any disbelief there. Yeah, but an empty NES? Who the fuck are you kidding? Fuck, yeah, fuck off. <laughs> fuck off with that. Uh, but when morning comes, it's now Sam who's playing Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles feverishly and, and preventing Nick from sleeping. The dad has become hooked on video games. Anyone can enjoy an NES. That one I did pick up on as I was watching. <laughs> oh, yeah, he cut the cut moment. That? The moment it showed that the dad was uh, playing it, then I was like, oh, right, yeah. It, even your dad will love it. It's so good. And, and I love how Bo Bridges plays Nintendo. <laughs> like a sweating lunatic. <laughs> you know, we, we, Panting and, and, and depraved. And we, jo- we joke about how, you know, people play video games and movies and the, you know, the act of feverishly pressing buttons would never correspond to how someone would actually play a video game in real life. But I think there are few examples that are, are, are presented with such energy and joy. As Bo Bridges playing Super Nintendo uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles in this shitty hotel room. For someone who gives, uh, even in even in scenes where he's like smashing up the car, he gives a rather like downplayed performance throughout the whole film. Yeah, this is a stark moment. And again, as we as we see in everything in this film, it's only when there's a product to hawk that we see everyone on top of their game. It's true. It's absolutely true. The director was like, listen, Bo, you are fucking selling the shit out of this product. I need to believe that you are this invested in the adventures, the 8-bit adventures of those teenage mutant turtles we love to call Ninja. It's time to earn your fucking paycheck, Bo. Uh-huh. Go time. The f- pay the piper. So Corey wakes <laughs> up in a drive-in theater to find that Jimmy's missing. Jimmy's outside making walls out of empty popcorn bins, for which Corey has really no patience whatsoever. Like, this is this is when the imp- This is where Corey really becomes a prick. I think <laughs> is 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 my deal. Like he's clearly this kid is distressed, and I can understand being tired of having to deal with this kid in distress. You know, and it's been two years that he's been like this. Yeah. And you're finally reaching your breaking point with this. But Corey, up to this point, has only been conveyed as the one who has sympathy for this child where no one else does. Yes. And so the sudden shift of him just sort of snapping and, and wrecking his little wall that he's building, just being a, an asshole over it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's... You're the one who kidnapped him, mate. Right? Yeah. And Haley tries to give some comfort to Jimmy, um, but she she gets pissed off about Corey being a dick, and, she, you know, just when she's starting to get all squishy about how he put his arm around her at Lucas's place. <coughs> so suddenly, the three kids that they took at the diner the night before in the racing game show up and assault them. Sorry about that. Very rude. Very rude. Um, 
Sorry, I was being very rude for coughing. I, oh. I apologize for that. Oh, no, no, no. I was, I was saying the, the, the kids assaulting the, is very rude. The tough teens, uh, that's how they're credited, by the way. Oh, yes, I, uh, tough teens. I was looking at Amazon X-Ray. No facts for this on, on, on the Amazon X-Ray, at least. Which is surprising, because you think it'd be filled with them. But yeah. uh, I, at least I know that these characters are called tough teens. Well, they take Jimmy's lunchbox and open it to reveal that there's a whole bunch of just junk in it. Like a shoe and photographs and stuff. Full of fucking bullshit. Uh, Corey refunds the local youths uh, with a little bit of interest that they take on the top. And they also take Jimmy's hat. And they say, nice hat, moron. <laughs> and then... Which I can't tell if they're calling him a moron for having let them take his hat. Or if they're calling which... him a moron in a derogatory, like, you have a developmental disability way. Or if they're calling him a moron for the hat. Like, like they're insulting his choice of hat, which is weird because later on he's wearing it with pride. So many ways this um, could have gone. There are ways. I, I just don't know why he's calling them a, like a moron um, because they're children who got caught by older people in a vehicle. This wasn't an intellectual battle. Well, maybe they were morons for having uh, tried to hustle the older people in the first place. I mean that 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 could be the only thing. It's the only only rational. I mean, I'm reading too much into it. Clearly, they were just giving them. Obviously, tough teen we have language. spent more time thinking about this than a screenwriter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so, Corey looks through the stuff that was in the lunchbox and uh, realizes that it's all relating to Jennifer, Jimmy's twin sister, who tragically drowned in a river. Okay. We have heard Jennifer mentioned in passing, like, twice. We have heard the river mentioned in passing once. Maybe not in <laughs> passing. Maybe, oh, he never, he'd never go to the river. Like, they make a point of pointing out the river, but not explain anything of it. No, so, but it's, it, it is in that barrage of exposition. Like, I missed the river thing. Yeah, because it's, it's yes, because it is uh, just overwritten. Uh... So, but this is the point where we get now. We find out what Jimmy's defect is, ultimately, why he's so traumatized. And it's because he had a twin sister who drowned in a river. Yeah, and that has caused him to withdraw and be this way. Mm-hmm. Now, that all seems fairly obvious, and not really something you need to institutionalize a boy over. And uh, like that. That seems like a case for grief counseling that I think if if he'd gotten like this after she passed away you don't need to open a fucking lunchbox to work it out it would have made for a less interesting film but you don't need to open a lunchbox to think oh he stopped talking after his twin sister died maybe that's the reason well and but the the other members of the family seem to get this on some level or at least at least Mr. Prick, the new stepfather, he gets it. The mom seems to get it. She seems sort of tragically distant herself. She barely speaks in the film. Yeah. Um, she sort of lets Mr. Prickman do all the talking. So those those two are, are get it. Bo Bridges gets it. I I just don't. It's, it's such a I don't know strangely presented revelation at this late juncture in the film 
Yeah. Well, it's it's like the movie has to lie to us to get us there because they have to have other characters who would probably, you know, in an in a naturalistic conversation would be openly talking about this, not hinting at it. Right. The kid's not in the room. If the kid, if they just been done something as simple as had the kid in the room. They could then have them realistically dancing around the topic, but he wasn't in the room. He was outside building shit. Yeah, when when they first set up this whole yeah. So to do it, so it's the characters actively hiding information from the audience, which I, which is lazy, to you know, at its most basic level, with no justification for it. Yeah. Yes, Heavy Rain did similar things that uh, I wrote a whole article on once. Um, and I've always been sort of annoyed by it since. It's, uh, yeah, if, if a character has to actively obscure things for no reason and they're just doing it to the audience and not within the, the scene, fuck you, movie. So having had this revelation that Jimmy is traumatized by the death of his sister, duh, um, and, and, and this whole California thing relates to that. Corey decides it's time to go home. It's like, oh, okay, we're defeated. We're going home. Not, you know, okay, well, then let's go to California and solve your problem. No, he's just like, yeah, fuck it. I'm gonna call my dad. We're gonna go home. <laughs> okay. Uh, Haley, like you would, protests this. Yeah. Uh, suggesting that she might. Because she's got. She's the sensible one of the group until the scenes where she isn't because the plot needs her to not be. Well, and and she, yeah, she's supposed to be, you know, the the slightly more mature character who thinks she's way more mature than she actually is, um, kind of figure, who is you know supposed to be the uh, I guess the rock that these two who clearly have no fucking idea how to make their way in life uh, can <laughs> lean on for support. Yeah, and 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 she comes across as the same. They know. they'd have been dead within five minutes if not for her. Oh God, yes. Like face down in a ditch somewhere, they'd have just fallen. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so she suggests that she might have been kind of into Corey up until this point, um, uh, but now it's uh, fuck him. Uh, but Jimmy, Jimmy wants to keep going, um, and this is the most dialogue Jimmy has said at the entire film up to this point. Uh, now, this is this silent Bob Speaks moment. Right, and he says, I, I, I want to keep going, I think is what he says or something like that. It's just one line. But they're all so excited about him having spoken that they decide, okay, well, we're going to keep going. Yeah, it's not quite as good as when uh, she says, holy shit, in Hellraiser 2, Hellbound. Putnam assaults another kid playing pinball, gets no information. Was it, oh shit? But on the way out, Sam and Nick spot him, driving away. And so Sam hits Putnam's car with his truck repeatedly. (laughs) Until the truck needs repair. And Putnam drives off with a pretty fucked up trunk on his car. Yeah. I mean, he's already had his one smashed to shit anyway. I mean, Bo smashes into his after already trashing it with the shovel, at this point, you might as well just use it for battering ram purposes. Well, I mean, he backed up into Bo Bridges driving forward. Into, like, they had a serious collision there. Um, I mean, yeah, like, like to the point where I don't know how any of them walked from it. 
I, I had a... You'd get severe whiplash at the very least. When I was uh, 18, 19, I had a, a car accident where uh, my college roommate was following me somewhere. And I had stopped at a light and the brakes went out on his car and he rear-ended me. Uh, I wasn't mm-hmm. driving backwards. In fact, I saw. I realized he was going to hit me, and I wasn't going to be able to get away quickly enough. So I made sure to take my foot off of the brake, uh, so that there'd be less resistance and therefore damage. Mm-hmm. Um, and my 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 frame on my van was bent and irreparable and totaled as a result. I can't imagine what's been done to this fucker's sedan. <laughs> Like he's done with that as soon as this yeah. adventure is over. And like, I mean, to the point where, like, is it going to be worth the paycheck? Because it doesn't seem like it is. The actual, the progression of the destruction of each other's vehicles is a thematic element that I had noticed until now. Mm-hmm. Like, they both just fuck each other's vehicles up repeatedly. Yeah, yeah, it is a running thing. I didn't realize how escalatingly... <laughs> yeah, that's weird. That's a weird escalation. I hadn't noticed until now. Uh, the kids get to Reno, which is Haley's home turf, where they meet with a trucker named Spanky. He was a very large African-American man, good-natured, smiley dude. Um, I think it was supposed to be funny that he was named Spanky and was this large, good-natured guy. I guess. I think that might have been intended to be funny. I mean, again, as with a lot of this film, it was weird. Yeah. And they use him... weird. They use him to place bets at a craps table. And you brought this scene up a little earlier. <laughs> Haley is literally yelling bets across the casino floor... Yeah. ...to Spanky to place. And now, I, the children, and shouldn't be in there, and yelling inconspicuously would get them thrown out within seconds. And B, they're yelling out what bets to place from far away. They'd be thrown out within seconds for cheating. Nobody around that table, with the exception of Spanky, is in any way acknowledging that they are there. Honestly, the scene played... Like, even the people around Haley and crew aren't responding or reacting to her shouting, like, over their heads. Well, the way it's shot, it there's is nobody like behind ghosts. Haley and, and them. Like, it's there's two camera angles. There's one that's looking at the active craps table where Spanky's playing. There's a whole bunch of people crowded around there. And then there's another shot that might as well be in a different casino, right? <laughs> that's pointed at an empty craps table that Haley and them are around. And there's nobody behind them in the scene. It's just them. And it is so weird. <laughs> but nobody around... But again, it's one of those... It's one of those bits where it's like, I can suspend disbelief up to a point. Yeah. Um, but this is where I can't suspend it because it's just so lewd. It's so absurd if, that we're acting as if they're ghosts that only Spanky can see. If that doesn't break your suspension of disbelief, um, they win a bunch of money and then get thrown out because now after they've you know successfully accomplished the plot point of being able to get the money, uh, it, it can now be illegal and they can now be thrown out and we can show yes. that it's bad. <laughs> but this is where the suspension of disbelief completely shatters because the casino lets them keep the money. 
Yes, that crossed my mind as well when I watched it. I'm like, he's got a lot of money in his hand for someone being thrown out of a casino. Those are illegally placed bets that the casino could have their gambling license revoked over. Yes. Like, and... These are children using an adult as a proxy. If there is one thing casino operators just are protective... Two things. There are two things casino operatives are protective of. Their gambling license and their liquor license. It's the two key things to running a casino. (laughs) They're just giving... And they only won 400 bucks. Of which they let Spanky keep 10. 10 bucks. For his risk of prison. (laughs) (laughs) Does seem, it does seem a little. I'm sorry, it would probably just be a a stiff fine. But $10 wouldn't have covered it. No, 10 bucks would not have covered the stiff fine. Um, but again, if they let him keep the money, then I think at that point, Spanky would have to say, look, I'm using this to pay the fine. Yeah. You can't have this money to go and play a video game. But that's what they do. <laughs> they take the, and I'd like to note again, this is $400 that they have, $390 that they have after they give Spanky his cut. And yeah, I mean, it. we see the two. We see the two extremes of truckers in this film. There are the truckers, and there are only two types. There are the truckers who will steal money from children and abandon them to die. And there are truckers who will risk their livelihoods and their financial future in order to help a child for $10 of a $400 take. That's the only two type of truckers. There's not a spectrum. They're the only two. No. There are, there, those are the two types. <laughs> they're taking money from children or they're taking immensely small cuts for huge risks. So Haley takes the $390 that they have, gets them a hotel room, I guess at the casino? I mean, if it's at the casino. Or at another casino resort type thing in Reno. I mean, here's the thing. They, uh... They do rent them rooms cheap. Uh, well, I mean, it was on 89. The assumption that you're betting. Rooms could have been cheater, cheaper. You know, well, rooms definitely would have been cheaper at that time. You know, there's there's some justification for that. Sure, fine. Okay. I'm just saying they wouldn't book three children into a casino hotel. Oh, God, no. No one would rent them that room. I'm sure that they would have no. had to get Spanky to go rent that room for them. That Yeah. And then, I mean, that's another 10, and then it's just adding up. Right. But, okay, so just again, I can't stress this enough $390. Okay. They rent yeah. this. I like in the sequel, Spanky buys cigarettes and porn for them. They, they rent this room for a minimum of two days, right? Yeah. But more important. They're chewing through that money. More important. They buy a bunch of whole other candy and other junk. Yeah, because they're children. They shouldn't be allowed to have gotten this far. But how much? How, how much money? It's $390, right? $390. It's $390. Hotel for two days. Bunch of other crap. But the real expense, the real cost. Uh, and, and also paying quarters for all the video games. Because these are arcade games. You could have bought a Nintendo. But then you wouldn't have act- had access to all like 97 games in the Nintendo library as of 1989 or whatever the fuck it was. The 97 yeah. games that had the Nintendo seal of approval. But where the real money goes is that she spends what I can only assume is the vast majority of the two days that they're in the hotel room 
on the hotel's phone, which if you've never made a hotel phone call, that shit ain't cheap. If you've never made a hotel phone call, don't. If they're, and, and, and who is she calling? The Nintendo Gameplay Hotline, which is like <laughs> buck ninety nine the first minute, ninety nine cents each additional minute. This is well worth risking spank his neck. I mean, I did. This is well worth him putting his fucking kneecaps on the line for this, so that they could call the Nintendo fucking hotline from a hotel room in a casino that they shouldn't legally have. I mean, let's just say hypothetically. That she spends only 12 hours a day on the phone to this hotline. Because it's the only thing we see her doing. This entire montage. Okay? At... At buck ninety-nine for the first minute, 99 cents each additional minute. Assuming, assuming she never gets disconnected and does straight 12-hour sessions with the gameplay advisor. Over the course of two days, she has racked up just in their fees... Almost three grand. (laughs) And I know that this is a real sort of like nitpicky pedantic thing to get hung up on in this movie that is strictly there to sell Nintendo. But holy fuck. No, no, I mean, it's... It's it's, again, beyond, beyond the suspension of disbelief. Putnam calls uh, Jimmy's mother to update her uh, on his progress. And I guess he's in Nevada by now. Maybe. It's hard to say. But he sees Sam and Nick pull into the place that, you know, he's using the phone from. So he hires a tow truck driver to fuck with them further. So Sam and Nick are getting food in this diner. Nick notices a kid wearing the hat from Sam's landscaping company. It's one of the three toughs that was beating up the kids earlier. And while they're talking to him, trying to get information, because it's clear that he's seen Corey and Jimmy somewhere along the way, Lucas is sitting at the counter of the diner. He overhears and says he can direct them to where the kids are headed. And then they're struck with another setback as they see their truck being towed away. So... Lucas here is, uh, this is where the first instance we see of Lucas sort of undermining the kid's quest to get to California and, and get to Video Armageddon. Um, and then we get a scene where the kids assess their progress briefly. And then we get a cut to Putnam, who's driving his car. And Putnam is talking on the phone again to Jimmy's mom. But this time it's presented in voiceover because they didn't shoot a scene where he is on the phone talking to him. Oh, yeah, that bit was weird because it was all the audio was distorted sounding. It it was weird. Okay, the way they filmed that. Right. It was the reason this is here is because they needed to explain how it was that Putnam knows where he's going. Yeah. Yeah, And so they say, oh, well, Lucas told me too, basically. But we never yeah. see Lucas. I, I, I guess the 
you it's not established that even though they were in the same place that Lucas and him talked because Lucas overhears this other conversation and it seems to dawn on him like he's got this idea of how he can not like, well, that's weird. You're the second people today to ask about it. It's really ineptly filmed. but and and this but this is also the only time he talks to the mother that it's in voiceover. You know, he's not shown being on the phone. And he doesn't have a car phone. So no. it's a whole confusing fuckery. That was that was the bit that I found so weird. Yeah. Because it's a shot of a car driving and him talking on the phone. And it doesn't match up and with I'm any like, other instance of him talking on the phone, which he's done a yeah, couple of times. Yeah. Last before. time he Yeah, he was using payphones. Right. So I'm like so is this a conversation that already happened and I guess he's driving? Like, I guess that's what it was, but you it takes you a while because you're like, this is new. Uh, and it's also... It's, this is a new thing the film has done. It's also strange because we have to now, um, when we're looking at these kinds of movies and the time in which they were made, we often have to remember that cellular telephones were not commonplace yet. No, not at all. I mean, that, that was... That's what I was expecting. I was expecting it to like cut to an interior shot of the car and for him to have a boxy phone or something. Right. But no. No. Yeah, and, and so I guess trying to convey that at some point he might have stopped and explained this, and you know, and now we're you know, and they're visually showing him. That's how they patched up the fact that they they never shot a scene with Lucas and Putnam. That's that's how they did it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's obvious that Lucas knows who he is because in a later scene we see him recognizing Putnam. Go figure. Uh, anyway, after uh, after all of this, uh, oh, I guess I guess Jimmy's mother's tired of waiting for Putnam because uh, you can hear in his conversation that you know it, it seems that she's going to take the trip to California herself to find them now. Yeah. Uh, Sam and Nick retrieve their truck from the tow yard only to discover that it's been mostly stripped now. Um, yeah, and he t- he takes that... <sighs> kind of in stride? Well, yeah, like, he's not demanding it, like... Like, I would demand a vehicle instantly. Yeah. I wouldn't just... He, he just, like, throws his... Uh, the 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 registration plate just throws it at the car angrily and is just sort of oh what am I gonna do now I'm like didn't you towed my you stole my car and are stripping it for parts what are you people going to do about it I mean, and and it's not really I have a lost child it's not really clarified like what sort of agreement that they're understanding that they come to but the truck does get fixed like. They, they're just delayed again, and then they, they wind up fixing the truck. And I, I don't know, maybe they have to put a different back end on it or something because, like, the... the um... I guess. It's, it's like, yeah, it's just they don't have a truck for a bit, and then it's back, as far as I was concerned. Right. Um, as, uh, so Putnam gets to Reno, and he's poking around at a casino, and, and it happens to be the one that the kids are at, and the, he finds Corey out by the pool. Um, but lets him go so that he can go and retrieve Jimmy from the arcade. Corey calls for Haley's help in this situation, and they get to the arcade in time to find Putnam carrying Jimmy off, so Haley 
pulls the only move she's got. And this is the bit that made me laugh out loud because I was so startled by the sheer bluntness of what happens. She screams, he touched my breast. (laughs) Yeah, a big, like, piercing shriek. And then he touched my breast. And, you know, he's... He's got Fred Savage in his arms and looks like he's trying to carry him off. Right, so it's, obviously it's, everyone the in the little casino and the Fred security. Savage. He's got the little one, but yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. It's got it's got uh, Jimmy. Yeah. Sorry. Um, yeah, he's got the other kid, so it looks obviously you know. Oh no, he's kidnapping one. Um, and that was I, it. Was just the suddenness of it. See, like when she started screaming, I was like, okay, she's gonna like obviously make out that he's there to kidnap them and stuff. But he touched my breast was like. Here's here's my It's so specific. It's so specific. And that's it's like she's thought about this plot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She has definitely been prepared to do this. In a post me Too environment. This is really fucking problematic. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's. I, I don't want to... It's a scene of someone falsely declaring... Sexual yeah. assault. Yeah. And so it, it made me... I mean, I'm... I, I Yes, obviously, it's it's being played a lip, uh, you know, for purpose and maybe a bit for laughs, but it kind of makes me a little uncomfortable in this time when we are supposed to believe women and... Um, I mean, we were always supposed to believe women, I guess, but now we've woken up to that fact on some level. And and then I watched this movie where the characters, I don't know, makes me makes me sad a little bit because um, I have to you know be reminded of this world we're living in while I'm trying to watch a fun fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I just, I just found it funny when he was holding the, Kid and oh yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's comical. Off. It's comically presented, absolutely. And and it, because yeah. it comes so out of nowhere, it is jarring. And and it's not like your response is inappropriate. I'm not saying that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. And I'm not. I'm not saying that you're uh, uh, wrong for pointing out what you pointed out. I mean, like even as I, you know, once I was, I got over the laughter and the shock and was just sat there, mouth open. I was like, okay, I know that this is gonna come up in, this is a thing we're gonna discussion. have to talk about this is yeah 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 because it is it is looking back quite awkward well, and, and even if it is still initially like a you know a goof and this is you know not to date this podcast or anything but you know here we are like just a few weeks after james o'keefe's uh organization project veritas was exposed for having um hired a woman who uh, went to the Washington Post newspaper and tried to claim that she'd been sexually assaulted by uh, Roy Moore, who was running for Senate in Alabama, uh, as a way to discredit the newspaper by getting it to uh, getting one of its reporters to suggest that they were making politically motivated stories against Roy Moore. And so it's just it's a dark time for sexual unfounded sexual abuse allegations. Uh, to be comedic, I guess. Uh, yeah, and, and honestly, like, like fuck wizard for its poor timing on that. <laughs> yes, now, like, 27 years later. 
Um, no, no, I mean, not not to to brush away the unfortunate implications but we'll ne- we will of probably that never scene see in a film again, full of them. In a film that, you know, no. attempts to be respected. And that's kind of interesting in its own right. Uh, progress for you, I guess. I mean, shif- shifting, shifting standards, uh, it, it is a constant. I also uh, Even though some people think it's a very new thing, it is a constant. I also think it's, it's, it's really interesting, uh, the security's response to this. Because they just go in and grab Putnam, make him drop Jimmy, and, ca- and haul him off. No one stops to talk to Haley. No one. <laughs> after well, the again, the children are always allowed to run rampant. Yeah. I mean, it was the 80s. It was a different time. It was before Tori it Amos was a came time. along. And... Tori Amos's cynicism, exploitative cynicism came along <laughs> and ruined innocent films like The Wizard that just wanted to share what a quality product Nintendo put out. <laughs> uh, so Haley takes... Jimmy and uh, and Corey. Why does everyone's name end in E? I'm just now noticing this. Easier for the easy for the people making the film to remember. Like all three of these. Honestly, kids... easier for me to remember. This is the only time you've kept track one of, of all the, few the kids. Times that I've... Yeah. Well, normally I just know them by the actors' names. Like normally I'd just be calling him Fred Savage. Right. But because it was Corey and Jimmy, I know it's Corey and Jimmy. <laughs> Uh, Haley takes them to hide out at her home, uh, which turns out not to be a big house like she'd claimed, but really a shitty trailer. Oh, I had no idea that was coming. What a shock. Uh, meanwhile, back at, uh, the tow yard where the, you know, truck was being stripped and is now being repaired, Sam has developed his his unhealthy obsession with video games further, playing Zelda 2 in this repair shop on someone else's TV. Um... And now it's that was definitely the one you wanted to immortalize in film. Oh yeah, for sure. But I can still hear. I know it was obviously the one they were selling at the time. Now it's Nick's turn to be the like. What are you doing, wasting your time with these video games, Dad? It's a little role reversal moment. He just sort of. Well, again, it's it's he's he's the reckless husband being chided by the wife. And so he he. They have that stereotypical dynamic. He grabs the NES, right? Just yanks it out and heads off and, like, yanks the controller out, which powers it off for some reason. Not quite, but okay. We're going to roll with it. Takes the Nintendo and rolls away. He leaves the RF adapter hanging from the uh, television. Bo Bridges doesn't pick it up either. It's just an interesting thing to note because it means one of two things to me. Uh, One... The more believable Nick is so frustrated, he forgets it, and now they will not be able to play their Nintendo anymore. Or the more fanciful, and my my personal belief, is that every television in this world already has an RF adapter connected to it, waiting for a Nintendo Entertainment System to be plugged in. This is the world... Where the power glove makes you a master of video games. And a world where you can say without cringing, I love the power glove. It's bad. And that's okay to say. In that world, yes, it is believable that every TV is wired, already prepared to accept an NES into the house 
into any family home at an affordable not, price. Not just any family home, but any auto repair shop. Oh, that's true. Family homes and auto repair shops. That's where you play NES and mo- CD motels. motels that you share with your you dad. You can play it anywhere because it, it, you know, it's so easy to hook up. I mean, that's it. Like, you, you know, you find a one that's broken in a truck, um, fix it, uh, be- because you're Christian Slater, and play it in an auto repair shop while tires are being changed or your car that was stolen and stripped gets put back together without any criminal uh, recompense. Atop Haley's trailer, she tells Corey her tragic backstory with her gambling-addicted mother who drove them into debt and how she wanted to use her share of the video Armageddon winnings to help her father buy a house, which, it should be noted, 25 grand would be a considerable down payment on a house in Reno. Like, yeah. Although, especially again, we talk of we talk of mixed messages. Um, we have Haley who has witnessed gambling destroy her family, and yet and that's where she it learned is, it. Well, it's 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 where she. It obviously explains how she learned to be good at it. But is it by the same does token? It, does it explain how she learned to be good at it? Well, it explains how she knows how it yeah, works. Yeah, I was going to say guess. because her mother, clearly her better mother than apparently her mother. wasn't very good at it. Yeah. Um, but it's supposed to explain, I guess, how she is good at it, uh, for the purposes of the film. Um, but despite this, you know, the evils of gambling, it is how she wins. Yeah. It is how they get anywhere. So again, it's this mixed message because they wanted to tell a story in one scene and a different one in another without regards to consistency. So Corey compares this situation to Zelda. I'm really not sure what the metaphor is there. Oh dear, there are there are adults who will do that now with any situation, though. Yeah. So this was predictive. Oh well, no, yeah. Corey is clearly a a future, like mid thirties basement dweller. Yeah, and I I won't I won't act as if I'm above it all. No. I'll go outside and it'll be misty on a morning and sometimes I'll think, oh, it's like Silent Hill. Because I'm pathetic. Right, yes, yeah, we are not above being sad ourselves. I mean, yeah, look at at what we're doing. (laughs) Jesus, it's been too... uh, I got a a medical Uh, appointment today. Yeah, we're we're almost done. (laughs) It actually ramps up pretty quick. We'll we'll, we'll blow through here. Um, So she, uh, Corey then tries to kiss her which she rejects initially, but then turns the tables and forcefully kisses him when Corey suggests that she might prefer kissing girls instead. Yeah, and she she's a she calls him a smart Alec for it or a smart ass. I think it's smart Alec. I don't um, get the sense that she is like insulted by the suggestion that she might be a lesbian, though. No, but but she seems like she definitely needs to prove she isn't. But I gotta give it to Corey, who seems totally cool with the idea that she might be into chicks. Well, that was it. Like she she reacts as if, "Oh, you smart Alec," but it seemed to me like he was just drawing a conclusion as a child would that if she says she will never kiss a boy, then he, does she want to kiss girls? And he doesn't ask it mockingly. No credit to Corey. He is very very woke here. In this yeah, movie. he's he's not in this one scene. He's not an asshole, but he's called out for being one, and then gets kissed, and then gets uh, yeah, 
It's this uh, movie's mixed messages are really. It's an odd. F- it's an odd film looking back, uh, and I only watched it a couple of hours ago. Putnam, having been released by security at the casino, now somehow has Haley's name. I don't understand how. I wouldn't worry about it. But he uses it to contact directory assistants to get addresses for everybody with her last name. This is a thing you could do, by the way, kids, Mm -hmm. if if you didn't know. In the 80s, you could call a number and say, I have this name. Can you give me its address? And they would just give it to you. This was a real thing that I've done as a child. You could do it. Could you imagine? Today, I mean, sure, yeah, you can look up shit on Google and and whatnot, and there's yellow pages or white pages or whatever. But calling and talking to a person and saying, give me this information about this random person's address, please, and then them giving it to you? Just handing it over, yeah. The world was a weird fucking place, and it was only 25 years ago. Jesus, it really, yeah, barely, barely any time at all. The next morning, Corey wakes up to find Jimmy is missing again, and he spots Putnam hauling off Jimmy into the car and driving away. And after asking to be convinced that Jimmy could have gone all the way in Video Armageddon, Haley says she's got friends. And on the road, as Putnam is being a dick to Jimmy, throwing lollipops at him, Oh, yeah, yeah. It's really unnecessary. Yeah, have a sucker. You've got the kid. Christ. Again, we need to be reminded he's a villain because the job he's doing isn't actually villainous. No. In nature. He just, he needs to do it in a villainy way. Uh, He's stopped by a couple of semi-trucks blocking the road, pointing the wrong direction. And two more come in behind to pin him in. And among the truckers... Um, that's another 40 bucks she's had to spend. Good old Spanky. Yeah. Who asks, did you touch her breast? <laughs> and they give him a good pummeling. It, uh, it, 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 you don't get to see the pummeling because they needed that PG rating. Of course. Yeah, they, they've got consoles to sell to children. But you do get to see... In this weird film. You do get to see uh, him... Uh, Tending to the black eye he has with an icy from Seven Eleven. Yes, because again, wants more product to more be placed in there. It's not just Nintendo kids. Actually, we're gonna get to see some other ridiculous product placement here in a second. Uh, Spanky then gives the kids a ride to Los Angeles, and they arrive at Universal Studios Hollywood. Because the rest of this film is going to be, in many ways, an ad for Universal Studios Hollywood, just as much as it is Nintendo. Yeah. Uh, they go to register for the Video Armageddon event with an extremely excitable attendant. Who tells them that the first game is Ninja Gaiden. <laughs> this guy's a treat. Wow. Where did they find him? Um... As the round before Jimmy's wraps up, we see that Lucas is the current front runner. Then it's Jimmy's turn. He plays well enough to be one of the three finalists when the last round is going to start in 15 minutes, where they will play a game yeah. nobody's ever played before. Which And again, just to 
further walk back what I said when I, I didn't think it was cynical exploitation. Um, normally, you'd see a tournament in a film about a tournament. We really don't. Hear. No, we see we are one round rushed of to the final playing games, and not we don't see any game footage in this time either. They're just we just see some people playing games, pretty much. Yeah, um, yeah, but yeah, it's just, while this guy just sweats and screams for for what is supposed to be like the big event. It seems relatively minor. Uh, there's you know no build up once they're there. It's just, okay, well, now he's into the finals. Uh, Putnam, having arrived at Universal Studios Hollywood, finds Video Armageddon and realizes that that's where the kids are. Uh, but Jimmy's mom and, new, and and Mr. Prick show up, and, and this delays him. Somehow they've figured out Universal Studios Hollywood is the place to be. I, I don't, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, well, I mean, who... Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't go? Who, well, is my yeah, question. If you're going to California, where else is there to go? But lovely Universal Studios Hollywood. Meet the stars. Um, Make memories that will last a lifetime. Outside of the, the venue for the event, Lucas sees Putnam and calls to him, pointing out Jimmy and, and crew, sending them off on another fun-filled chase through the Universal Studio tour. Uh, along the way, Sam and Nick also see the chase. They pursue as well. And the kids finally escape into the King Kong sequence, which was like a huge deal at the time. Like the Universal Studios tour, <coughs> uh, they were, you know, following in on Disney's massive success with Disneyland over the years. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and the addition of Walt Disney World, which was a huge, huge, huge theme park. Universal had then Universal Studios... Hollywood and Orlando um, to compete. And uh, the big, all of the ads featured this sequence with the King Kong feature of the Universal Studios tour where, where mm-hmm. King Kong assaults the, the carts and it's all exciting. Uh, so, of course, they show that here. Uh, there's a later film that does, uh, that. I, I don't know if we did it. Um. I feel like I've seen another film where they do a similar Universal Studios tour thing, but it's uh, some earthquake movie or something that was hot at the time. And they do that instead, and they highlight that bit, which was also heavily advertised. So this is uh, not the only time Universal Studios has capitalized on this opportunity to sell their theme park. And, of course, it's not the only time that any sort of resort or park has done this. No, uh, no. Hello, Happy Madison Productions. But it is, it is so... Um, it was really, really... I think more obvious than in most sequences here because of how just prominent that King Kong thing was at the time. Uh, Sam catches up with this uh, chase and gets into punchings with Putnam. And the kids flee through the maintenance area for the ride, discovering that they are somehow now above the video Armageddon arena? Yeah. It it didn't seem like in in a film that wasn't shot ineptly, <laughs> they'd have maybe changed that so the you know the downward motion of one scene would correspond with their position in the next. Yeah, scene. like they, you would think that they would need to get elevated somewhere. There was there'd be some indication that they'd gone up. A simple visual language. Right. If if you see someone in an elevator going down, you assume they're going to be below the subsequent action. Right. In here, they're above it. They take the elevator 
They take the downward elevator up. On uh, on stage at Video Armageddon, the announcer, who I would like to remind everyone is very much not Rick Mayall. He, yes. He, he sweats as well as Rick Mayall ever did, yeah. but he ain't he Rick ain't Mayall. Rick Mayall. Uh, he, he goes to start the show, uh, but he's only got two of his competitors. And yeah, one of whom, um, the girl, he... Maura. Um, yeah, compliments her beauty and plays with her pigtails, and it's not creepy and weird the at all. The lovely Maura Grissom. And props to her, though. I like Maura Grissom. She is, uh, she's there to be mocked, unfortunately. Like, her intent in this is to be mocked. But she's got a spirit to her. She's got an enthusiasm and a love for the game that comes through. I like Mm -hmm. Amora. I like that they put this somewhat plain-faced figure into this. And it's disappointing that that she's I, that I know in my heart that she was put there to be made fun of by the audience on some level. I think for me, it, it was just the announcer hitting on her that freaked me out. I I know. I mean, I don't think she's. I don't think her presence is problematic at all. I like that she's there. I like that she seems fairly normal. No, no, no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm just saying that I. I was very focused it on is the fact weird. that it looked like the announcer was making moves. He plays with them in an odd fashion. It is. Super yeah. Awkward. I mean, there's that famous YouTube video of a game show host acting disturbingly intimately with a uh, like a young guest, mm-hmm. and it's it's fucking. Ugh. Um, this is sort of the sledgehammer version <laughs> of that. It's just a real quick hit. Yeah, and it's uh. It's just not pleasant. No, it's it's at the end of the day. Strange. Uh, so Lucas gets announced first, then Mora gets announced, and while Mora is being announced, um, Corey is trying to get Lucas's attention through a grate up above Lucas to to tell him to you know, hey, let the announcer know we're here. And oh, that Lucas sabotaging all the time. Yeah, he's such he is such an antagonist in this movie by not doing very much. He does much. nothing. Well, that's exactly what he does. He does nothing. That's his antagonistic yep. reaction is to do nothing. Um the announcer tries to announce Jimmy twice, but obviously Jimmy ain't there. So after a couple of tries, he gives up and the doors to Video Armageddon open up, revealing Jimmy already at one of the stations. And this is And at no point does anyone call, as they should, for a disqualification. Nope. For someone back there with the game no one's ever seen before, with a an early look at the machinery, the potential to have tried it, they don't know. DQ, throw him no, out. Oh, absolutely. I mean you would think Lucas would be right on that shit. Although maybe not. Maybe Lucas is so overconfident in his own abilities. That while he has been specifically tried to avoid facing Jimmy in actual competition ever since meeting him the first time, uh, he still believes he could do it. Yeah. I think that the problem with all of what you just said is that it's all from beginning to end characterization that you've written. <laughs> Not the movie. You've made all that up in your head, and it's good. <laughs> and, 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 and if that was communicated in the film, it would give Lucas some reason to be, right. you know... The villain of the of the film, 
instead that really just goes to Putnam. Um, because as I say, in a movie about a game tournament, there's very little tournament. It, it's brushed. It's it's just there to show Super Mario Brothers three. I also and that's the it. The video Armageddon stage is really strangely designed too. It looks how the Destructoid show used to look when they took a bunch of consoles and spray painted them and then stuck them to a wall. It does. It does. I. It looks like remember that a lot. A lot of video game video shows that were in quote-unquote studios were that let's get some keyboards let's get some i mean hell fucking roger corbin movies would do that like just just duct tape a fucking keyboard to a wall and spray paint it silver now we're on a spaceship everyone it's that level of set like it's so clearly just like i think odds and ends that they've stuck together and then just spray painted a uniform color i think the thing that that specifically draws my attention to it is that they worked against themselves in trying to make it seem more badass than it was uh like they overcomplicated it when the, the way that the video armageddon stage opens up in the film uh, they have this like wall and the wall is made up of three panels right there's one that goes all the way across the top and middle and then two at the mm-hmm. bottom right corner uh, bottom right and bottom left corners right and the two at the corners yeah. are supposed to pull back and the one the larger piece on the top it folds up like a a, a bay door opening right yeah yeah instead We're of supposed to look instead of futuristic. rising straight up and revealing the stage flat it unfolds in this really awkward fashion and i think what happened is they're like this is going to look so bad with the badass with this hinge this is going to look great we'll have all these lights underneath it and then they built it and it looked like shit and and, and i'm sure there's somebody on the production team is just like well why don't we just like straight up raise it and the whoever is responsible whoever was responsible for this stage is like no we're committed we're in we're doing it we're shooting this fucking thing because it's awkward and slow, and it doesn't seem right at all. That would describe much of what happens in this That's film. A good point. Uh, with all of the players in place, Super Mario Brothers 3 is revealed the very reason anyone showed up for this movie in the first place. Yes. Uh, and they start playing. Uh, the number. And I start laughing. Hmm? I laugh a lot. I laughed a lot during this scene because dramatic music is playing. And the crowds, you know, we see Fred Savage and co. The families have all united inside the crowd. Um, you know, even even Mr. Prick is sort of invested, getting I know that invested. Kid. Putnam gets invested as well, yeah. He's like, I know that kid. Um, but there's this dramatic music because everything's on the line. And it's like, you know, eight proper eight is as well. Like, boom, 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 boom. Like, you know, everything is on the line and... and the music is underscoring the this is important. But they also chose to play the game audio as well. <laughs> so while we're hearing this, you know, for the time and for the type of movie it was, this epic crescendo music to show this is the final, we're also hearing... And it, the dissonance was too much to bear. It's also just... A, the... the it, it was it's MTV Sorry. style quick cuts um, from gameplay to whatever this weird scoring system that they have. Is. Yeah, 
Now, the announcer says they have 10 minutes to get um, points? as many points as possible. Yeah. But they put a huge emphasis on Jimmy at one point getting the warp whistle um, or the warp flute as uh, as Haley yells out because Haley spends this whole scene commentating for the audience and explaining explaining the the elements of this game that she has never seen before. Yes, she's never seen this uh, before, but knows everything about it um, because she's giving the audience a tutorial in how the game works. At one point, um, the dad shouts, watch out for the mushroom. I don't know what Why that means. Why would you avoid the mushroom in Super Mario Brothers 3? I guess... That makes no sense. This is not Super Mario Brothers 2, The Lost Levels. No, the there are mushroom. no poison mushrooms yeah. here. Like, I mean, maybe he would be saying, watch out Make to sure pick to get it the up, mushroom? but that's a weird phrasing. Yeah. I don't think they knew what they were talking about, that that would be cynical. Um... Yeah, so I was laughing at the, the, the oral dissonance of this whole thing. The audio dissonance was driving me up the wall. I'm loving the visual um, dissonance where none of the numbers mean <laughs> fuck all. No. Uh, well, yeah, which brings me back around to they get the warp whistle slash float, which Haley knows all about, even though this is a brand <laughs> new game. Warps to, I think, like level yep. four. Giant world. And suddenly races ahead in points. But he's still, well, but uh, he's which... still behind. Because he's died twice, and he's 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 still behind Lucas right up until like the last seconds. Well, no, he well well he's like, he's behind because he dies in World Two a lot, but then gets the warp whistle, and he's suddenly competitive right. again because he gets a surge of distance from it. At which point, I'm now wondering like he's the announcer. He said it was a race for points, mm-hmm. but this is being shot like a race for distance. We're not seeing them hit blocks. We're not seeing them... I mean, we're seeing blocks get hit and enemies get stomped, but we're not seeing an emphasis on that for them racking up points. Yeah. The only emphasis we're seeing is progress. Like, as emphasized by the fact that get the star, get the star is yelled right at the countdown. And, oh, he has to start World 2 over again, which, by you know, it's, it's, it's world, all World 1. It's a mess. It's world one. That's it as well. Yeah, it's constantly fucking world one. I, at one point, I was like, okay, so if they switch to just playing world one over and over again until they get points, like, I, I, it... <sighs> anyway, he wins. Yeah, he dies a couple of times to create some dramatic <laughs> tension, manages to discover the secret warp whistle, travel to world four, advance beyond their focus, and, and wins somehow. Uh, wins wins the points and by everybody by now you know acknowledges that he's special so yay yes. his whole family cares all about it, him again it was, all it took was breaking out of an institution traveling across two states is the thing like this whole th- no they they were just it, it, they as just inept didn't as understand the him. and i don't i don't get you know, this this doesn't help them understand him like they're we're no. gonna understand him in like the next scene because on the road home, Jimmy starts freaking out about California again as they pass a crappy tourist trap of fake dinosaurs. Uh, now, <clears throat> we talk about shoehorning in exposition. A plot point that I failed to mention in one of these earlier scenes. Now I only now remember uh, the scene where Bo Bridges and Christian Slater are in bed together, and it's really hot. Um. 
one of the things Christian Slater brings up in this nostalgic looking back at their family is all the road trips they used to go on hitting every crappy tourist trap along the way. See, that little bit of dialogue that was just sort of slipped in unremarkedly into the... Oh, no, that's the whole central crux of this. That's the whole thing. The whole thing is that they, they, they needed to go to these tourist traps. Like, that, that's the whole thing centers around the goddamn dinosaurs. That's it. It centers around the fucking dinosaurs. And so the cars get pulled over at these diners, dinos. Jimmy hauls ass into one of them upstairs into the gift shop, which is, of course, inside the dinosaur. Uh, behind a curtain where Corey follows and comes to the conclusion that, oh, well, Jimmy wanted to bring his sister to a place where she was happy. Showing a photo of the fully assembled family sitting on the foot of the same dino. Lunchboxes left behind, and the kids ride off into the sunset in the back of Sam's now repaired pickup truck. Yeah. And that's the fucking wizard right there. Right. I'm not going to even bother with the. I, I, Conrad, did you like it or not? Yeah, it's. I, no, I didn't like it. It's, it's a disposable. <laughs> it's not a bad, bad movie. It's a movie that's badly done. I guess it, that thing. That's it. Like it's, I, I, I enjoyed it enough to just watch it. I thought I thought but, I would be more troubled by the uh, sort of Rain Manny type stuff, you know, because Rain Man introduced into the popular culture this savant idea relating to people on the autistic spectrum, which is just mm-hmm. not really. I mean, there's there's no real grounding in it. Yes, there are some people who are like that, but. Yeah, and to the movie's credit, especially as one that you know could cynically be seen as as just trying to chomp on Rain Man's flavor, it it it's downplayed. It doesn't exploit to, it to degree... the level that no. you might think uh, in in something that is just so cynically an advertisement. Yeah, in a in a film filled with like mixed messages and bizarre turns and inappropriate moments. That bit is handled with surprising care. Yeah. Well, I won't even say care. Um, it might just be because they didn't bother writing anything about him or or really bother with any of the writing that wasn't a Nintendo advertisement scene. But they didn't, they didn't, they didn't attempt to draw a connection between his disability, maybe, is the word that I'm looking for there? I mean, I mean, honest... I, Honestly, it's uh, it's his, it's trauma. I yeah, guess, I guess is, is his deal. He's not he's not on the spectrum or anything. Yeah, um, he acts like he's on the spectrum to some extent, but he's 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 traumatized into silence and with with withdrawn um, behavior. Right. Um, but they wanted it to look like Rain right. Man because because of popular but here's so here, but here's the thing about it is that i know in a couple of hours i'm gonna think back on the wizard and i'm are you yeah i probably will because it's the thing i did today and and i'm gonna look back on the things that i did today at some point today and the only things i'm gonna be able to fucking remember about it are video armageddon and lucas <laughs> yeah that's it everything else everything else will be forgotten yeah. i'll remember power glove 
I'll remember Video Armageddon. And that's probably yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Uh, and that accounts for maybe all of uh, eight and a half minutes, give or take, of this 90-minute feature. Yes. Which we have turned into a two-and-a-half-hour podcast. <laughs> I don't know, but I am now so late. <laughs> Well, what are we doing next Like, time? I've got a rush to get ready. Okay, I thought ahead of time. Um, Dead Space Downfall. Ooh. I figured we might as well do something animated. And, it's been a and, little and, while. And now that some of the pain of Visceral is gone, maybe we can... Yeah. yeah. We, can, we can just... I mean, I know I'm just going to chat shit about electronic arts for a lot of that one, Something but uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Yeah. Uh, so Dead Space Downfall uh, is our next one. Um, I should wrap up because, like I say, I, I really have to shoot off. So you can catch us in another podcast we do, Fist Shark Marketing. Yeah, I said that right, Fist Shark Marketing. Uh, it's an improv comedy podcast uh, where we play uh, corrupt uh, PR executives. Uh, that's at fistshark.com, or you look up Fist Shark Marketing at iTunes or any other podcasty place. Uh, and that's about it. Thank you all for supporting and listening as usual. We will see you uh, in another fortnight's time for Dead Space Downfall. Bye. Bye.